Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. Usually takes a second to start, but it started. Uh, <laughs> but here we are, episode 124 of the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network, as well as Herpeticulture Magazine. Uh, I am Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Phil Wolf, the Nefers Initiative. And yes, tonight, sir. tonight's a special special guest, man. He's this a is very special guest. Wow. It's uh, I don't well, <laughs> so it's it's. Are you? Would you be considered Doctor Rhodes now? No, 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 no. No, okay. I know Master you were doing Rhodes. Some, yeah. <laughs> I like so. I like that Master Master Rhodes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I got my master's right before COVID. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Congra- congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to get. I sometimes think about yeah, getting a PhD. Uh, but for really silly reasons, I, I like. Carl Sagan a lot, you know, uh, oh, yeah. because he had. Oh a- yeah. <laughs> of course. So I want to be like Carl, you know. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'll be 41 on Saturday, so you know, schools, you know, professors, they just can't scare me anymore. You know? <laughs> that's and that's that's the best way to do it. You know, my my late mentor, his uh, his widow got her PhD at 67 years old. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, if I do it, I, I want to um, I want to have it paid for <laughs> by somebody else or at least <laughs> be, be uh, financially in, independent enough to where it doesn't even matter. I can just do it and pursue it. And, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, being a grad student is like um, it's, um, you give up things like uh, personal hygiene. <laughs> and money, you know. Yeah. No, yeah. don't forget about the social life. In that too, yeah. So, can we just uh, dec- uh, declare something real quick that you are in fact not the wrestler? Correct. And how, <laughs> how tired of you were of, about hearing that? Oh God. <laughs> uh, yeah, my Facebook. Uh, handle or whatever it is you know where you have like a little short like little yeah. three word bio you know used to say dusty no not that dusty roads yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i like it yeah because yeah. I, I told a few people you know in eager anticipation of tonight's show i told a few friends that have your book and, and so on and so forth and i was like man we got dusty roads coming on and they're like <laughs> the wrestler i thought i thought he was dead <laughs> that's always going to be like my um I'm always going to have to explain that, you know, like, no, no, yeah. not that guy. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun curse. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I get tired of being told I look like Jack Black sometimes. Depends on my mood. Mm. Yeah. I've gotten Seth Rogen more times than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Does Seth have a beard now or? I don't know. Um, I've seen pictures of him no. without one and it's, it's deeply, now, and see, I thought that was fake. Uncomfortable. I thought that I that know. was that was like a fake campaign. It's actually not even him. It's somebody, some other guy. Yeah, but, <laughs> it's very convincing. 
So, but before we get into everything, this show is brought to you by Steve Snake Show and his Venom Hot Sauce and MP Cages and Exotics. So, if you need hot sauce and you need a cage slash rack slash awesome build from Sean, hit him up. Follow him on uh, Facebook and Instagram, Steve Snakesuary and MP Cages and Exotics. Uh, so it's a funny story with your book. I got it initially just for the chapter on Bairds. Because there's like <laughs> there's cool. there's really not a lot of information on Bairds out there. And I mean, not that they necessarily warrant a ton because they're really not anything in terms of care and ecology and stuff. I don't find them to be anything really all that outstanding. Um but then, so I started reading it because I was like, I'm going to, you know, I'll read it. And by the end of that, I wanted Subox so bad. <laughs> and I ended up finally getting one at Daytona. Was it Daytona last year? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got a little mail and then I ended up trading some Alterna to our buddy Chris, who we just mentioned, um, for some, a pair of Wild Rose Pass. So, Very nice. I bet I know who bred those. <laughs> Probably. How do I need to ask him? He, I think he told me, and I don't remember who it is off the top yeah. of my head. But I just, I had no idea that those things. Like I've had some people tell me about them, and they're like, "Yeah, they're you know they're really cool. They're, they're kind of like house snakes in the fact that they're almost more like a little python than anything else, and uh, kind of like the anti-rat snake in a sense. They're, they're a little, little bizarre. And the you know the fact that we don't know a ton about you know there's there's still things to be learned about them is something that I find interesting. Um, so I just thought Absolutely. Was, I got the bear, you know, I bought it for the Bairds chapter, and by the end of it, I <laughs> more Bairds and more Subox. And that's what's cool, man. What's cool funny is the person told me that, but I've always wanted that, you know, to be like an important part, you know, as well as, as the Bairds and the Syndicalists and, mm-hmm. and all that, because those, to me, those are all just as cool and kind of in the same category of, of uh, you know, husbandry style and all that and even in, in certain ways you know yeah <clears throat> no but it's just funny because i remember when justin got the book and he's like dude i got this i got the complete subock and you know it's got this whole thing of bairds in it and i'm, I'm really excited and then a couple days later he's like man trans pecos are pretty freaking cool and then a couple days later i was like dude did you know this and then like a couple days later it's like hey man did you know this and like <laughs> if you could just see the passion just d- developing, yeah. you know? Uh, so I, I was so actually, cool. I was curious if he was going to tell that story or not. If not, I was going to throw him yeah. under the bus with that yeah. one. <laughs> That's so cool. Cause I mean, I was a different person when I did that book. I was like 24 when I started, when I decided I wanted to be like Mr. Subok, you know, mm-hmm. and like make a Subok website and like have, have it just like I had, you know, Don Soderbergh's, you know, corn snake website where it's just nothing but corn morphs and stuff. I wanted to have nothing but subock morphs and localities. And, uh, and I'd always wanted to write a book about snakes since I was a little kid. I, I had, um, I had written to a, uh, a snake author named, uh, Mike McEachern, um, who, I don't know if you remember the AVS books, the advanced vivarium systems, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. ultra library series. Yep. Um, he had written some of the first ones in 91 um, that were black and white <clears throat> that I saw when I was like 11 years old going into our neighborhood or our town pet store called Jungle Gems in Texas City, Texas. <laughs> and uh, my mom used to drop me off there when she would go do her shopping. Um, and I would just sit in the aisle of the pet store and read those books. And, and I see an ad on the back of the, the books for uh, 
to join the uh, AFH, you know, American Federation of Herpetoculturists, and, and to get the vivarium uh, magazine or journal and uh, did that. But I, there was there was a um, a mail uh, mailing address that Mike had put in his corn snake books, and he was a professor. He was a uh, he might still be actually of of microbiology, um, but he you know he didn't he didn't specialize in, in herpetology at all. Um, but I had written to him he, because in, in the uh, the mailing address that he left in his book was for people um, to tell him about new corn snake morphs that were coming up um, or discovered. And, but I wrote him specifically to ask for advice on writing a book on snakes <laughs> when I was like 11 or 12 years old. Um, Did he know how old you were? Yeah, I told him in this handwritten letter in like 91 or 92, you know, which is before we, my, we didn't have a computer, you know, before the internet or anything like that. Uh, and uh, he, he wrote me back and he, he included a, um, an, an early draft or a, um, uh, a proof, a hard print, uh, a hard copy proof of his book <laughs> in this big, uh, like manila folder <clears throat> thing that he sent in the mail um, with a very nice, letter uh, encouraging me uh, even you know in spite of my age um, and uh, and so whenever I started working on this subhawk.com website back around 2004-2005 um, I was just like all this information that I'm starting to write for this which I hadn't even published yet on the on the website I was like someone's gonna take and put into a book because I was really spending a lot of time in at the university library finding trying to find everything I could on subox mm -hmm. and um, like everything ever published on them and try to compile it into one place, synthesize it into one source. And I was like, someone's going to take this, put it into a book. And I've always wanted to write a book. So this might as well be it, you know? <laughs> um, so that's kind of how that came about. And I was actually, I was living in Utah at the time. I was going to um, BYU in Provo. <laughs> um, and uh, I was working at Dan and Colette Sutherland's place. Nice. Um, yeah, they only lived a few miles away, mm -hmm. and uh, um, and they were paying me in mice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow. given how expensive mice have gotten, especially like now, that's actually it's not a bad. Not a bad right, <laughs> it wasn't bad at all because they would just let me go through after I would take care of a couple hundred pythons once a week for a few hours. They would let me walk over to their next door to their. Um, they had two warehouses, each about probably who knows five thousand feet each. 5,000 square feet each, one with pythons and boas and another one with just rats and mice. And I would walk over there and they would just let me walk through with <clears throat> uh, container store shoe boxes and just fill up with live mice, however many I needed. Man, I had all my subox were so healthy. I had, I think, 85 subox at that time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And my, my females were so girthy. I mean, they were like, you know, as big around as Bigger than a ping pong ball, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, me and Phil are going out to that area uh, the 6th, and it'll I'm be my first time going out there. I That's, like, at the top of my list as far as herping places. Like, I'm, anywhere else in the world, like, I don't care. Southwest Texas is where it's at. And it's just because, like, the Bairds and, you know, the different rattlesnake species and stuff, I've just come to the conclusion that that place is just, like, another planet compared to other parts of the U.S. You know, there's just so much cool stuff it's you know interesting terrain um and my obsession with bairds you know that uh 
it's I just I gotta I gotta get out there. And I don't know, Phil, have you even been out there before? So I've been out there in in travel for work and stuff, but never to do what we're doing. Like I've never yeah. camped out, I've never road cruised it, I've never I've never really herped it at all. So I mean, I've been to several places all over Texas with work, and it's just you, when you're doing it for work, you don't have time to. Like, hey guys, I, I got to go flip these rocks over here. Like it just doesn't happen. <laughs> so I'm I'm super excited. I really am. You know, and the, and I'm we could for you guys. Yeah, man, and it, it's amazing because we couldn't we could not find or ask for any better people to go with. So like our little team of guys going is the best of the best, and I love it. It's going to be so much fun. I'm excited. Excellent. And now, and now we have to find Subbox because I got to bring one home for the girl. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, find a blonde. <laughs> right? I'm sure yeah. she'll love that. And I call her, babe, babe. I found a blonde. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> what did you find? <laughs> so, what was the uh, like? Why? What initially sparked your interest in Subbox in particular? But I guess I mean, what's your experience with Baird's been like over the years too has it been kind of something that where they just kind of go hand in hand because you're in that area yeah. and you're finding that stuff yeah i just i'll take these glasses off this annoying glare from the computer um <clears throat> yeah i um when i was when i was doing research about them most of the popular or articles for a popular audience um, like by Dick Bartlett and others like from Reptiles Magazine in the early 90s and from the Vivarium in the, from the late 80s to the early to mid 90s, um, written by Gerald Merker and others, Dick Bartlett, etc. They um, they tended to, when they wrote books about Southwestern, well, about Trans-Pecos rat snakes, they tended to also include Baird's rat snakes and Arizona green rat snakes. And, and it's, so it seemed like it was always kind of like, um, a trifecta that you had to address if you were going to write about them because because they're so obscure. Like, how do you make a case for just one of one rat snake? Right. You know? And so, um, <clears throat> and so you know, it, as far as you know, why I always always loved them ever since I was a kid. You know, I loved uh, reading Caulfield's book at the uh, the local library in Texas City where I grew up. Um, and there was a, you know, chapter in there, the search for subocularis. And that guy was kind of like a poet, you know, um, of snake science popularization. And, uh, uh, and, you know, there was a handsome subock and a black and white photo in that book. And, um, and then when I saw Gerald Merker's article, who was also, a, you know, Baird's rat snake. I think he still is bear dress snake breeders since forever. Um, it was, I think it was one of the first times I'd ever seen a blonde face trans pickles rat snake. And that thing was just Easter egg yellow. It was just like pastel, beautiful, like right out of the wild, right out of the Christmas mountains. And it's just, it's so their, their, their hues, their colors are so, um, just beautiful and just kind of um very i mean you're, they're what you think of when you think of a desert reptile if you were trying to imagine what a beautiful reptile from from a, a desert background might look like to me that's what a trans pecos snake looks like 
because they have that that beautiful yellow in the straw and uh and then, of course, when I started re researching about them, I just wanted to what I wanted to do was read a book about them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there wasn't one. You know? oh, yeah. So <clears throat> that's that's another thing that kind of prompted writing the book and bear dress snakes. I don't remember if this was a dream or not, but I, I remember being a little kid and seeing a yellow snake with a silver head. And like I said, this might have been a dream or I might have seen it in a book or something or a combination of the two. But when I finally saw a yellow bear's rat snake with a silver head from mm -hmm. Nuevo Leon, Mexico, it was just like, it was just like a hit of really powerful drug. You know? It's like, wow, this thing is yeah. amazing looking, you know. The ultimate deja vu. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, yeah, and it's, it's funny that, because I mean, I post a lot of pictures of mine. I have a, a fairly large group of them. I think I'm approaching i don't know 14 with a clutch of six in the incubator like i post a lot of pictures and people you know when you get obviously pictures don't do them justice entirely but people do see the uh, you know like the loma altas are, are crazy popular um my albino male like people they see that and I, it's really often that i have people ask me like what is that like people are completely unaware that they exist and it's one of those things where once people people get it when they see one firsthand, like then it makes sense, you know. Like you can look at the pictures and stuff, but then when they get their hands on one and they see just the the, uh, you know, the detail and the nuance of the color and stuff like that, then they're like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, I, I can admit I didn't know what it was until Justin started, you know, inquiring about them, and when he showed me babies, you know, in Daytona, it's like, oh, all right. He's just, dude, just trust me. In six to eight months, your mind will be blown. And I was like, all right, it just kind of looks like a gray rat snake, you know? But, and then sure as hell, he was right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're incredible snakes. I've only found one so far in the wild, one bear. Um, and I actually, I lived in the Davis Mountains. Excellent. Um, Excellent. For, for a short while because um, I was a high school science teacher in Marfa, Texas for one year. <laughs> there weren't any houses available. Marfa is only 20 minutes from Alpine. And so a friend of mine uh, had a house nestled in the Davis Mountains. And so I just I lived with her for six weeks, maybe two months, <clears throat> um, while I was trying to find a house in Marfa. And, uh, and a bear's rat snake had crawled into her kitchen a baby, wow. a brand new hatchling from the wild crawled into her kitchen because she had the patio door open, you know, like how amazing is that? Right. That's I mean, great. That's <laughs> she, awesome. had she had peccaries in her yard and stuff all the time. It was like, it was really cool to be in that house. Um, Did you find any lepidus while you were there? Yes. Yes. Definitely found nice. lepidus. And, so, and that's another thing about Baird Eye and Subox. And a lot of these desert reptiles, you know, it's like as you go further and further west, there's um, higher and higher elevation. Uh, there's there's less humidity. There's um, there's more bare ground. And so because you have more bare ground and because reptiles um, uh, are predated upon by um, by species that 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 have uh, that hunt visually like birds. Um, that have color vision, they reptiles in the desert 
tend to look like they're made out of the rock that they're born on. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And oh, bears yeah. are included in that. And so, you know, you're talking about the, you know, the bear eye that are kind of gunmetal blue, you know, mm -hmm. that you get from the eastern part of the, of the range in Texas. Well, in the Davis Mountains, where you have this, um, <clears throat> where you have this igneous, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the rock there. I think it's called Gomez Tuff. It's a tuff is a type of rock, T-U-F-F. Hmm. Um, it's something like 37 million year old rock uh, that's volcanic. On the inside of the rock, when you crack it open, it's pink and red. On the outside of the rock, when it's weathered, it's like chocolate brown, like dark chocolate. And, um, and so you get a mixture, depending on how disturbed any, any rock environment is, of those colors in the snakes there, including uh, trans-pecos rat snakes, bared eye, rock rattlesnakes. Uh, but not just those, but other ones too, like uh, black tails tend to be darker in the Davis Mountains, black tailed rattlesnake, uh, even even diamondbacks, which are habitat generalists, you know, uh, western diamondbacks uh, tend to be darker in the Davis Mountains. The bear dye are darker there as well. Um, so it's just you know another reason to to love these these all these rat snakes from the southwest because it, besides the green rat snakes, of course, they don't look anything like the rocks that they're that they're from. But um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that, well, that, they barely that, come into the United States and they're and they're related to mostly tropical snakes, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. well there was you were talking about uh you were on Mike Pingleton's uh podcast a couple months ago and you were talking about horn lizards but you had mentioned the color matching where they're you know where that population is being found is it a similar uh mechanism to like what you would find with speckled rattlesnakes? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, similar mechanism. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, the the speckled thing is really neat um, with those white ones that you get in the TAs. You know. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, just yeah, just really incredible herpetology in the desert southwest. I'm like you, Justin. I um, <clears throat> I my first stint in grad school was let's see, 11 years ago, 2010. Uh, and that was at Ole Miss, University of Mississippi, in Bryce Noonan's lab. And all of the other guys who were in that lab um, were eager to go off, you know, to Africa, New Zealand, all these exotic places. Not me. I wanted to go to, to West Texas <laughs> to, to do my research, you know. That, like, why? Like, why Why go halfway across the world, you know, yeah. that universe? You know, that was, at least in my mind, you know, I just... There's plenty of stuff right here that we don't know anything about, you know. Well, I think for me, it's just a lack of traveling, you know, other than moving because I was a military kid. Like, I haven't been globetrotting at all. I've never been doing I've been to the Bahamas. Like, that's it. You know, that's about as exotic as it's gotten for me. So mm. maybe that's yeah. why I have a, a better appreciation to start here at home before I go to other places. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I look at I look at the U.S. as like we have a good friend Nipper in London, and he is enamored with North American species. And he's only been here a few times, and he's done minimal herping. But you know, he's he's a rattlesnake fanatic, and he hopes to have field herped and photographed every single rattlesnake of the Americas. And if anyone's going to do it, he's the one to do it. But it, it's one of those classic examples where, you know, you don't necessarily appreciate what you have in your backyard 
you always want to, yeah. you know, go to the other place that the grass is always greener kind of concept, you know? Right. And it wasn't until my <laughs> current adult years that I really realized what we have in our quote unquote backyard. And at the same time, because I have not been able to leave the continent that I've never left this continent. Uh, I hope to in the near future, obviously, you know, COVID permitting. Um, but I, I think that like this trip we're going on is not only going to be breathtakingly amazing, but it also prepares me for some of the excursions I plan to do internationally later on. So I think that there's a lot to be seen in our area and we need to remember that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, I'm also just like enamored with the, with the, the history of the people, um, associated with the herpetology here, you know, like, um, as, uh, my friend Jerry Salmon and I, um, were interested in, in the history of, of things like gray band and king snakes and trans-pecos snakes because they were discovered by the same guy, um, who owned a saddle shop in Pecos, Texas. Wow. And, uh, and it, whenever you read like Raymond Dittmar's book, um, which came out like 1907. He was, you know, director or the, you know, curator of herps at the Bronx Zoo under William T. Hornaday, who um, uh, was basically the, the the director of the zoo at that time, turn of the 20th century. Um, and Hornaday was uh, the, the person basically, essentially responsible for saving uh, the American buffalo from extinction <laughs> uh, around 1900. <clears throat> um, bringing some of them back to the Bronx Zoo to breed them in captivity, et cetera. And um, anyway, when you re when you read some of that old stuff, the Dittmars, they would always talk about, um, uh, and, and Alf R uh, Wright, who wrote, uh, uh, who was at Cornell University and wrote a book, you know, the, the uh, Snakes of uh, North America, I think, uh, two-volume set. They talked about the, the collector of gray banded king snakes and transpecos dress snakes as E. Mayenberg, the first letter of his name, E. Mayenberg. And so Jerry and I were always wanting to know, well, who is this guy? Like, um, uh, <clears throat> we don't even know his first name. And so we did some digging and we found that he had gotten shot off of his horse in Pecos, like Old West style. Um, and he was, a, he was a saddle shop owner there in Pecos. Uh, he had just got married the month before, and so it was jealousy, apparently. So was, there was a young ranch hand who had, um, was jealous of this girl that he had married. I guess he was kind of, you know, a well-to-do citizen <clears throat> who could afford to marry this girl. And, uh, and then the killer was chased 20 miles outside of Pecos on horseback by the, the sheriff there in town, finally uh, apprehended. Um, and brought back, and then he went to Huntsville State Prison for 10 years <laughs> and was pardoned by the governor of the state of Texas, and then he eventually ended up moving, uh, ended up moving to uh, my parents' obscure little hometown in northern Oklahoma. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and my parents know some of his kids. Wow. Uh, kids. It might have been his kids because he, he, you know, took quite a while before he started his own family, you know. How did you find that information though? Was it like public records kind of stuff? It was, yeah, it's like uh, newspaper articles uh, from like that time, you know. And uh, uh, he, I, I don't remember where Jerry found, he found some of the, 
some of that other stuff about him ending up in Oklahoma and, and all that, but also ancestry.com because <laughs> they'll help you find this, you know, this kind of obscure information about different people. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. It's kind of like that John Muir quote, you know, like when you try to pick anything out, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's just right now I'm writing this book on horned lizard conservation, you know, as, as I mentioned in the in Mike Pingleton's show. And uh, uh, like I said, William T. Hornaday, one of the first white people, if you will, to, to, to ever see a stubbock, you know, uh, at the Bronx Zoo, because this guy, Edmund Manberg was his name, who lived in Pecos, had sent the Philadelphia Zoo and the Bronx Zoo several specimens of stubbocks in 1901 and 1902. And, and one gray banded king snake. <clears throat> well, Hornaday would have been one of the first people to see them, but he's also responsible for kind of having saved the bison, which bison ecology plays a huge part as far as uh, prairie um, uh, ecosystem engineering, uh, which which helps horn, things like horn lizards survive. <laughs> Very cool. Um, yeah, it's just it's just crazy how all these different stories kind of interweave out of out of in and out of each other. Yeah, it's funny you you bring up Hornady because uh, I I listen and watch a lot of Steve Rinella. He's a professional hunter and conservationist. Oh yeah, and and he's a huge fan of Hornady's work. And uh, I know that just listening to him on podcast, like I've I've found a couple of Hornady's pieces and read up a little bit on it, and it's awesome stuff. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, Hornet, uh, Rhinella is definitely um, one of the books. I've, I've probably got seven or eight books on bison right now and just, just to help me write this horn lizard book because I'm trying to write oh, about yeah. the history of, of the prairie and uh, um, uh, Rhinella's book is definitely in that, in there. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, totally fascinating. <laughs> have, you, uh, have you picked up uh, Dan Flores' uh, American Serengeti? It's right there on the floor. Nice, <laughs> awesome. So right, right now I'm writing about the destruction of the bison. Actually, um, this is right here. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so there's, yeah, a book on that very title. <clears throat> but yeah, um, I'm writing about the destruction of the bison. And yeah, I've got his book, American Serengeti. I've got his book, uh, um, Coyote America. Coyote America. Man, what a phenomenal piece of writing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, awesome. absolutely, man. These guys are poets of the of the prairie, man. Poets of yeah. the plains. Dan Flores. Um, I'll tell you who else is really good is uh, Richard Manning. Okay. Yeah, he's written a book called Grassland. Another one called like Rewilding the West or something like that. Um, Very cool. Yeah. Um, the, you can't compete with that. You can't compete with that level no. of of prose. Yeah, writing. Yeah. You can't. So I'd, I'd try not to, <laughs> but but <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is make it relevant for horn lizards because almost all the time when you when you read this kind of stuff, uh, it's 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 framed around the big the charismatic megafauna, you know, the, the bison and the pronghorn and the wolves and all that stuff, which are central. <clears throat> I, you know, I don't I, I wouldn't think of a horn lizard. You know, there's probably a lot of things we know we don't know about how horn lizards be, you know benefit the environment. But uh, I don't. I wouldn't think of a horn lizard as an ecosystem engineer, you know, or as a big player or ecosystem, you know, a driver of plains ecology. But um, um, but you have to you have to address it in in context of those 
of those large megafauna because they they are you know yeah and i mean i do feel like like horned lizards as a whole is a quintessential prairie and most definitely a quintessential you know western species absolutely like, yeah I, kind of like iconic you know yeah totally yeah they're iconic you know and it's, that's, i think um you know, it's it's so funny what we should what we choose to save as humans. You know, it, it tends to be symbols. <laughs> of course, things, of course, things that are symbols. And yeah. hornets are for sure a symbol. You know, I I live walking distance from Texas Christian University, and their mascot is the horn frogs. You know, which is you know a kind of a um, misnomer, but it's they're talking about horn lizards. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and they're breeding them right here. I, I can walk to the Fort Worth Zoo from where I live, and they're breeding them right there at the, horn, at the Fort Worth Zoo um, because Texans care about them, and Westerners care about horn lizards, you know? Yeah. And so I do think they're a, a good, uh, useful conduit for, for having the discussion about prairie conservation, you know, because most of Texas was grasslands, yeah. you know? Before, before uh, Euro Americans, uh, European Americans showed up, you know, like early 1800s, you know, right, right. <clears throat> um, and and so, if we want to save anything that I think has a semblance to what Texas is or was or what people tend to think of as Texas, which I think would be better for the economy, for for all of us, for uh, for uh, tourism, for <clears throat> then then we need to kind of understand its history and um, and and say that because a lot of those pieces are still out there. You know, we still have bison, we still have wolves, we still have uh, ornate box turtles and Mexican hognose snakes and a lot of those things of, of the uh, uh, of the Southern Great Plains, the, the, the central grasslands of the United States, but they're kind of scattered, prairie dogs, all that stuff, burrowing owls. Right. Um, and I don't think they exist in any one place in the Southern Great Plains where you have all of those things together, you know. It's a shame. Yeah, it is. There's only yeah. I think there's only one wild herd of, of southern Great Plains bison in existence. And it's, it's at Caprock Canyon State Park here in Texas in the in the Panhandle, you know. And you've got prairie dogs there, you've got horn lizards, you got a few things, but you don't have you don't have the, the predators, you don't have the wolves, you know, and you need that stuff, I think. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're kinda of, we're kinda of steering off the bears right now. <laughs> that's that's all right. It all coincides, man. It's awesome. I mean, Going back to the you know the old texts and the books and the information stuff like that, that was one reason why I enjoyed Michael Berger's book so much, The Dragon Traders, because it, it gave me a, that one, oh it's so good. I uh, it gave me a much better appreciation for a what we have now being you know the internet and endless amounts of information at your fingertips within you know milliseconds, um, mm -hmm. and just the fact that there's there's a lot of people that really paved the way for what we have now. You know, I mean, it goes back like way back. You know, like around the same time that you're talking about, you know, early 1900s, if not a little bit before that. And it brings it all the way up to today. And he did a really good job of it. And I, I can only imagine, I mean, the, the acknowledgement page is just massive because there's just so much information and pictures that he got from people. You know, it was, it's a great book and I, I highly recommend it. Um, and it, it actually talks about, so, you know, you talked about sort of Texas and being one of those places that, that. Caulfield and some of those other guys, you know, really liked. And I live in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is more or less Jasper County or Jasper County's in it, which had the Okatee Hunt Club, you know, in the 50s that became so popular for the corn snakes. And so mm -hmm. for me to see a, like a 
a page or two just about the Okatee Hunt Club and being, you know, looking at some of the pictures and knowing exactly where that stuff's at. It's like you forget that, you know, this was the place for corn snakes at one point in time. Yeah, it's yeah. For it. Right. And that that's by far my favorite fade, color phase or pattern of, of corn snake is, is that. Absolutely. That locality type. Yeah. So, yeah. But as far as... Like rare animals, I've read and heard multiple times that bairds are are not easy snakes to come across. But then you go on iNaturalist and you see a pretty good amount of sightings. I mean, I check it regularly because I have a Google Drive folder with the different counties, and I save those pictures and log it in there. And that's just for me because I, you know, I want to sort of study them more at one point so I can look at some bairds, be able to tell, you know, this is the general area that it's coming from. Just try to get better mm-hmm. at you know looking at them. Um, but I've, I've read, I remember at one point they, they were considered to be like one of the rarest snakes in the country in terms of people finding it. But I, you know, I hear that, but then I also see pictures of people finding them. And so what's what you said, you've only seen one. Yeah. I've only, I, yeah. I've only seen one. I've only seen one. And I, I don't know if, it, I, I don't know why. I don't know if that means they are, it's, you know, it's like coming out to the Northern extent of their, their range kind of thing. And so, I mean, I don't know if you find them like I like like I said, I lived in the Davis Mountains. I don't know if you find them north of there at all, you know, or west of there. I think that's about the furthest extent of their mm-hmm. of their range, you know. And so, I, I don't know why, or it might be some kind of collection bias with the way that we go out looking for them or something. I know a lot of times they're found, especially this time of year, they're found in the daytime, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and it's kind of haphazardly, just like somebody's like. And not are, even looking for them, and they stumble across. Not them. even looking for them. They're out, they're out riding a horse or something like that, you know? <laughs> and um, and they see one just kind of hanging out on top of a boulder, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but that's one thing I love about them, Baird's as captives, is that they're. Um, I feel like they're. That, you know, they're kind of a species that. Uh, that us humans can tell is in love with life <laughs> because they like, they like to be in the sun. They like to be kind of mm-hmm. out. They like to be kind of displayed. They kind of like to be, I feel like they get, they get sort of depressed if you keep them in a sort of uh, what Philippe DeVosely, you know, called like the laboratory animal method. of right. You know, uh, they just, if you just keep them on wood chips and, uh, and a hide box and a water bowl kind of thing, they just, they kind of get sort of depressed for lack of a better word. And yeah. uh, I've, always compared them, I've always compared them to as like the American version of Brettles pythons. Like they're always out really yeah. not hard to keep. They handle yep. air and temperature, you know, temperature swings really well. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty chill for the most part. I'm a decent part of my group is, is pretty spazzy. Um, but like I have a, I have a male Mexican mm-hmm. uh, type, the one that I showed you that I got that clutch from, and I can go in and pull him out no problem. And he's cool. But the female, she's a different story. She she wants nothing to do with me. Um, have you ever been bit by one? <clears throat> no. No. I've had some take some swings, but I I I haven't been bit by one yet. I've been must more times than I can even count. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's something I would definitely I've never like been to do. I won't either. That's why I asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's I, I really would at some point like to have 
like a display setup for some of the you know the more natural looking not the you know the hypos or anything like that but like kind of do what p and cody have done that phil knows about where they made some rock background out of foam and you know it mm-hmm. made it look, they did it for the what was that for those twin spots yeah for the price eye yeah the um and it, it's funny is you took the words out of my mouth i was just gonna say is one of the most exciting things for me about us going on this herb trip next week is getting to photograph and take notes of the ecosystems because mm. like we were talking about Cody and Pia, you know, they got, they have so many different enclosures and everything is just orchestrated beautifully. But for whatever reason, he, Cody really focused on that price. I, I know he ripped that cage apart 15, 20 times before he got it right. But he even got down to sponge painting the rock lichen, you know, the appropriate colors and, and, and doing color human color hue matches at Sherwin Williams trying to get the, the mm-hmm. color of the lichen right. And I, when we, when Justin and I were there after he had finished it, I had just gotten back from a, a herp trip in, in, in Tucson and I had photos of the rock lichen, the lichen, excuse me, that we saw in, in, you know, uh, Tonto national forest. So I showed him, I was like, dude, look at these and look at your cage, like spot on. So right. I think at least for Justin, cause he has the, all these bears, we're going to be in Baird's country and he's going to get to see it and take Dude, photos. Dude, I'm going to keep the hell out of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you got to do it. You got to do it, man. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that is in itself a whole other aspect of, of the hobby and the, the, the community that we do is mm-hmm. is setting it up as realistic as we can. Well, even mm-hmm. the fact that we're lucky enough to go and do like, you know, how yeah. Casey went to Australia to study, like to find bears in Alice Springs, like went all the way to Australia. That ain't a cheap you mean, trip. You know, you that's a long Bradley? trip. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> um, what I, what I say. What's that? You, you said, said Alice bears. Springs, like you're talking about the, the brettles, you know? Yeah. 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 I didn't, did I say something else other than brettles? You said, you said bears. Oh. <laughs> bears on the brain. Um, you know, he went Bears, all the way out there to study those things. And there's not that's not something a lot of people can can go and do. But I guess it's a little different when you're keeping U.S. native stuff like this because it's like it's a short, like what five hour flight from the East Coast to there to San yeah. Antonio. Not even. Um, you know, we're we're fortunate enough to be able to go do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so weird. I, I've noticed this with people who tend to like things like subox and bears and stuff. They also tend to like bread. Brettles pythons a lot. I'm a I have brettles, um, and um, and I've always loved brettles. They were always like my favorite python. <laughs> they're the total kid. package. We say that yeah. every episode. We talk about yeah. <laughs> brettles and how they're just like the best snake. You can't yeah. kill them. They're super chill. Like oh yeah, yeah. Keep them however them. you want. They don't care. Keep them in the oven. They don't care. Keep them in the freezer. They don't care. <laughs> like they're it's just. Yeah, there's there's always that running joke of what's the superior Morelia, and finally all the all the different cliques, all the different groups, we finally decided it's Bradley, Bradley, excuse me, Scott. <laughs> yeah, the desert carpet python. Mm-hmm. Can't get cooler yeah. than that, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, with red rocks in the background, overlooking a red gorge. Uh, was it? I think it was David Northcott, or you know that photographer. Like, oh yeah, that famous yeah. photo. Yeah. It's been in so many books. I never get tired of it. <laughs> I I won't lie. Like that, and there's maybe two or three other pictures similar to that. And those photos are my inspiration, my aspiration to 
to take my, my own photos. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Kind of that. Uh, what's that style? The guy from uh, who, uh, Grismer, you know, Grismer style photos, you know, Lee Grismer. He kind of does the, you know, herp and landscape, big yeah. panoramic, almost panoramic type shots, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. Can you, <clears throat> so one of the big things that I wanted to talk about for sure about as far as Bairds go is the whole hypo versus albino thing. Do we, who's the one who, do you know who did the, the determining research on them being albino instead of hypo? I don't think anybody? anyone has officially. I think they just kind of named that. Um, and, and I think that come, tends to come from Bern Bechtel's book, uh, Reptile and Amphibian Variants that came out, I think, 95. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Bechtel, are you familiar with the book? I'm familiar with him, but not the Okay. Uh, he was the first person, I think, to breed, you know, uh, albino corn snakes in captivity, yeah. I think 1961 or something like that. And um, and so he was, was kind of like the birth of herpeticulture in a way was was Dr. Bechtel. And he was a uh, dermatologist, I think, and so a human dermatologist. Uh, but he had such a good understanding of uh, melanocytes and things like that right. that he extrapolated that, that research into... Uh, chromatophores of herbs and uh, and tyrosinase positive versus tyrosinase negative uh, albinism and um, and he and so he has a section on that uh, trait in that book which came out from I think Krieger publishing in 95 and um, and so because yeah, what what are these Baradai? Uh I think because there's some melanin that bleeds through, people have ten- tended to call them T positive albinos. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough because they could like if someone said it's a hypo, you could look at it and be like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, someone could say it's an albino and a T plus. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I I think it's really semantics hypo. You know, mm-hmm. hy- hypo hypomelanism implies that tyrosinase, which is a, an enzyme that's a precursor to melanin production, or that's upstream of melanin production, uh, it, it's implied that there's some in there. <laughs> so I think, honestly, I think T positive and hypomelanism are the exact same thing. That would make sense. Mechanically. Yeah. yeah. I'll bet you yeah. Travis Wyman will message us once he hears this and give us a paragraph long explanation as to what's actually right. going on. Well, it's like I was, right. I was, I was speaking to someone recently about, uh, you know, uh, cottonmouths specifically, and they have, you know, your leucistic is leucistic given, but the hypo and the quote unquote albino is just T positive and T negative. Like there is no true amelanistic cottonmouth. Like it just doesn't exist as of yet. So I, I think it's one of those classic things of we give it the name because that's what we, we see it as. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that one's really bright. Right. It's a hypo when it's yeah. not the, the textbook, quote unquote, hypo. Does that make sense? Right. And yeah. I, I think a lot of it's also marketing whenever they were first produced. Like, how well, do I make sure. this sound cooler than the next guy's thing? Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> um, like, those, oh, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> No, I'm going. To. Those those wild rose pass. Mm-hmm. 
I supposedly they're I don't even know if they were for real from Wildrose Pass. Actually, I've been supposedly corrected on this, but I feel like I've gotten different stories on where those came from. But Wildrose Pass is right by Boy Scout Road, you know, okay. and so to me, Wildrose Pass sounds cooler than Boy Scout Road. <laughs> yeah. So that is, I, that is true. It's, it's, so it's just funny, kind of how different names, which ones stick, and yeah. you know. Um, and that's something that's been sort of my gripe with like the locality thing is like, at what point are, are you going overboard? You know, like with Alterna, it's like the mile marker. It's like, do you really have to, is that, is it that big of a difference between mile markers? Like, right. Like, yeah. With, yeah. Especially with large colubrids and, and, and think <laughs> species that are known to have fairly good sized home ranges and stuff, you know, subox have like a, um, their home range on average is like a quarter square mile at least okay. in the Indio mountains mm -hmm. from just from just from one telemetry research uh, uh, thesis from University of Texas, El Paso. Um, he, this kid of uh, Arturo, Arturo Roca followed six subox for a year or something like that. And, uh, um, and apparently they have really large home range sizes. So yeah, how much, how much difference does, a tenth of a mile, you know, make when yeah. you're when you're trying to match localities. Well, then you, know. you got the you know the the purity guys that want animals from that same region. It's like they don't want anything else, and they and my thing with chondros because I'm a big chondro guy is like you can never for sure know exactly that's where it came from unless you went and got it yourself. Yeah. Like yeah. you don't know how many hands that things pass through. It's like the telephone game. You know, you start with one thing and by the time it gets yeah. to the 10th person, it's a completely different locality than where it came from originally. Right. <laughs> and you, you got to right. trust, you got to trust that that person was truthful in it initially. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, um, there was a guy in Australia a few years ago who, um, his wife had worked for, I think like this, the national parks of Australia or something like that. So she was like a wildlife biologist, master's degree. And they lived in some, some land. There was a, um, a, it was a tan racer that they had in their backyard. Um, I say backyard, they had some land and they had some, some, some vineyards back there. And there was a racer snake that was eating grapes off the vine and he videoed it. Wow. <laughs> Somehow I came across this somewhat obscurely and like, it was just like, what? A snake is eating grapes? And sure enough, it was in his backyard. It was just pulling grapes off the vine and swallowing them. <laughs> wow. So this is like kind of a big deal. Snakes eating vegetation, you know, like fruit, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I was like, we've got to publish this. I mean, like it was just, it was just on some YouTube video. Only 3000 people had seen it. Like none. I was just looking through all the comments nobody was like saying anything about well this is like a snake eating fruit like, yeah it's a big deal wild snake eating. it wasn't like he was feeding them to him or anything you know it was a snake in his yard a wild snake and so we we he and i well i kind of wrote it up and i included him as a co-author in this and i sent it into the herpetological review and i had i had taken his youtube video and i put it into a a series of photos of the snake mm -hmm. grabbing the grape Swallowing it is six photos, like a sequential order of it doing the things, and uh, and it 
it got sent back to us of, oh, there's not enough um, evidence of of this thing having had happened or whatever. And I was like, and he's like, and he's like, and, and the reviewer said something like, why didn't you tell us there was a video on this, you know, kind of thing. And I'm like, well, it shouldn't that be evidence right there? You know, yeah. <laughs> you can find the video, you know? And I was like, first, and also I was like, why there's so many natural history notes going back for forever that we take as truth that we have no pictures of, you know, no, we're just taking somebody's word for it. You know, here we have video, you know, and you're kind of being persnickety about that, you know? Um, but yeah, it just plays into your, the point that you just made, you know? Yeah. Has a, has anyone ever tried to replicate that or no? That's my knowledge. No. Okay. That's the first yeah. time I've even heard about it or anything like yeah. it. Yeah. Cause like, uh, I've, I've heard stories of, of snakes eating obscure things because say a lizard that they normally you know predate on happened to musk or poo on a leaf or something and it happens to eat that leaf like there's that picture uh in the uh, house snakes workbook that billy was just showing us the other day of a mm -hmm. cottonmouth eating a large clump of algae and yeah it's like seaweed. yeah and it's like why would it doesn't need those nutrients per se or that we know of was it because yeah. it smelled like fish or it had right. some kind of lizard or frog scent on it you know who knows I'll leave yeah, Travis, yeah. Travis Wyman's kukri snake eating a snake shed. He put a snake oh, shed yeah, in there, there Richmond, and this kukri huh. snake, he found it just eating the shed. Yeah, and he got great photos of it, definitively eating. Yeah. It was a ball python's shed, right? I think huh. so. Yeah. But you know yeah. what's interesting? So our buddy Paul McIntyre, he has a podcast. He just had Mark O'Shea on. Like, it just got dropped a couple hours ago, and I watched it at work. And O'Shea talked yeah. about things like that very specifically. He's like, you know, you, we see these odd things like that happen, and the first thing we do is throw them up on Facebook, and then they kind of just disappear into the void. He's yeah. like, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, you find somebody who can write, and you make up, like you were saying with the, you know, the, the grape thing, find somebody that can yeah. write a paper, submit it, and, like, let it be available for people to read about you know years down the road like instead of just posting it and you know moving on you know yeah let it be immortal you know <laughs> made immortal <laughs> yeah it's, than, it's crazy you you mentioned that like six you know chronological pictures and uh i recently uh i was doing yeah. narration for the npr on the field herping cast and one of the species that they wanted me to narrate was uh uh, uh imprecii which is a hemprex coral snake so i start going down rabbit holes of because there's over 80 species of micros you know that they're described right yeah so i start going down this rabbit hole of hemprechii and there's there's nothing out there there's no journals there's no papers now, obviously i'm not an academic so i don't have access to a lot of good you know resource finding you know websites and stuff but i i found a paper that was i think 2012 or 2013 it's only like two and a half pages long but it was, I guess, some guys had gone out into the jungle looking for one thing or another, and they happened to see a coral snake eating another coral snake. And so they stopped to watch it, and they filmed it with a cell phone or a camcorder or something, and it wasn't eating it. It was males in combat. So they said, well, you know what? We're, we're clearly striking out on the mission that we came here for, so let's just do a quick paper on this because it's never been seen before ever. There's been no copulation photos or breeding uh -huh. rituals or anything of Hembrechii, and now, just out of pure luck, they did exactly uh -huh. what you did, and the paper got published. So it's awesome. Uh -huh. I, think, I think more people need to do it. Yeah. And you know, the, the reviewer, I know you guys know who it is, <laughs> if hoser can do it we can too what's that i said if hoser can do it we can too 
right? Hundred <laughs> percent. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, the root reviewer. Um, it, it some, somehow it that video came up again on some like snake, like really uh, popular Facebook group because it wasn't before, and like tons of people are like, "Wow, this is totally legit." And the reviewer was commenting on there, was like, "Yeah, I got a, I got a paper uh, from from the original observer of that, plus uh, another guy, Dusty Rhodes, and um, and we we sent we sent back some comments, and we never got it back." Um, and anyway, I, I responded on there. I just haven't got around to it. I was in graduate school at the time. And yeah. You, just, you know, you feel guilty doing anything outside of uh, outside of your research, you know, your main <laughs> research uh, <clears throat> during grad school. But I, I need to get back to that and go ahead and publish that. Yeah. <laughs> do you uh, do you remember what species of snake it was? Um, let's see. I could actually just look it up on my computer and tell you. Um, I, I'm just morbidly curious. Yeah. Um, I don't. It, I think it's called a, the tan racer or something like that. Probably um, some obscure pseudo colubra that could kill you in no time, but no one. Yeah, I know it's venomous. It. Sure. Yeah. it was. It was. It was Australia. You said right. It's an Australian snake, and it was during the drought. So I, I, um, I think it was uh, probably thirsty and was just getting some liquid through these grapes. You know, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Who knows what this what was going through the snake's mind? Um, it's just one hypothesis, but yeah, I'd come across the, we had referenced the, the sequential photos of a cottonmouth eating seaweed that Harvey Lillywhite had taken. He works at the Seahorse Key Field Station or something like that from the University of Florida, and he's been studying cottonmouths, on the insular cottonmouths on these uh, Florida Keys for a long time, and that's a really interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, mutualism between these uh, shore uh, birds that net that roost in the uh, mangroves, um, but the cottonmouths keep the rats from coming up and in, into the trees and eating their their eggs. Wow! <laughs> so, so the cottonmouths have bird shit all over them, and they'll they'll sometimes catch. Uh, pieces of fish that the birds will, will drop accidentally, you know, and eat wow. that. But, but they basically protect like 50 to a hundred or something like that. Different species of birds that nest on this sanctuary uh, on seahorse key. <laughs> wow. That's cool. crazy. Yeah. I got to look into that. And it, it, is it salt water? Um, yeah. I mean, all the water around there is, yeah, it's salt water. Yeah. So That's they, crazy. So, so the cottonmouths, of course, you know, either uh, rafted up or swam the, uh, across the, uh, the mainland to the, to the Keys. And apparently Harvey Lillywhite had, had, and others had seen them swimming <laughs> wow. in the salt water yeah. uh, from the island to the mainland and, and um, back and forth. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I just, just out of curiosity, I Googled Seahorse Key, and it is, it is out there. That is far offshore. Wow. I mean, for for a for a cottonmouth to swim, you know. Yeah. Crazy. Makes you wonder how many of them actually make it back to like the normal point where they left off. Right. Like how hey. how far down? How far up or down did they drift before they actually yeah. got to where they were going? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's crazy. They can kind of float, you know. 
Yeah. See, that's stuff yeah. like that that makes you wonder how much we still don't know, even about species that we keep in mass numbers. Of course. Yeah. 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 Right. And I remember at the time um, that I was working on the Subok book, there, <clears throat> I was at, like I said, BYU Library, Harold B. Lee Library had like, it's usually in the top three libraries in the Princeton Review, you know, you know, they have like the top whatever, and it's kind of meaningless lists of top universities for different categories, you know, really. But, um, but that library was really great because it, it was like six floors. The three bottom floors were underground, the three, uh, the four, five, and six were above ground. And the bottom floors were like several football fields. Wow. wow! Full of books, and um, they had. There was an article that came out while I was an undergrad there called uh, that that had how many miles of bookshelves they had in, in the library. Ninety-eight miles. <laughs> wow! <laughs> A so bookshelf. We're, we're talking like airplane hangar libraries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. It's just it's just amazing what we still don't know about humans, and yet how many miles? How how what percentage of all those ninety eight miles is books mostly dedicated to knowledge of humans and our, our societies, our mathematics, mm -hmm. our 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 culture, et cetera, et cetera? And yet how many? And I think I counted up at the time when I was um, when I was writing the Subok book that there were probably less than a hundred books that specialized on one kind of snake, you know. Yeah. And how many snakes are there? Something like 3,000, 3,200 different species or some, something like mm -hmm. that. And so it, it, there's just there's just so much we don't know. And I think that's why we appreciate books like, you know, the Subok book, the Condra book, the Carpet book, the Antaresia, uh, yeah. all the Chimera stuff, you know, like. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you oh, have yeah. the guys that, that have that one thing that they're into. And yeah. To know that there's a whole book on that that's just nothing but that animal you know, or even right. that group, it's just, it's all like, it's, that's why, you know, on the, on the docket, my, one of the questions I had was, you know, do you think there's enough information on Baird's to, to warrant an entire book? And I was thinking, yes, if you broke it down as far as like pictures of the different type localities, yeah, you know, but other than that, I mean, even with Subox, I think you would think that, you know, how, how can you write an entire book on those? But it's not until you read about them that you realize there's, Mm -hmm. there's totally information out there that could fill up a book yeah yeah, yeah. i think you could do a small book on baird eye and have it be really like dense good well-written stuff um and honestly if somebody just wanted to go to the different museum collections and open the stomachs of the baird eye that they have and you know pickled jars um like i say at Sol ross state university in alpine for instance i'm sure there's does actually i'm pretty sure i've seen the bear dye there and the jars of ethanol and somebody could go through and just figure out what the heck bear dye I've been eating for the past however many decades, you know, and, yeah. uh, and that could be like a big section of a book on bear dye alone, you know? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the colors. Um, oh, here's another thing. So <clears throat> I thought this might interest you. Um, Jerry Salmon, who I mentioned before, who had written that article with me on Edmund Manberg, the discoverer of gray banded king snakes and, uh, um, Subox. Yep. He is very interested in doing some genetic work on 
figuring out the difference between the Nuevo Leon, Verde, and mm -hmm. the ones in Texas. Because they were at one oh, point a subspecies, right? I don't know if like, they've ever. It's kind of like kind of like canebrakes, where it was like Atricodatus. Like people are like, yeah, it's a subspecies, and then you have people who were like, no, it's not. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I I would consider well, <clears throat> I as not as a joke, but I used to just when I would post pictures of them online, I would say Pantheropus Nuevo Leonensis, you know, <laughs> and people would just be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, but um, but a lot of the species that you find where where those Nuevo Leon Verde come from, like the the, the 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 species assemblages of snakes that are there versus the ones their counterparts that we have in Texas, for instance, mm -hmm. um, are different species. You know, right. you've got different Pituopus there than you have. That's the the Sierra Madre Oriental, right? The Eastern Sierra Madre, mm -hmm. right? You've got different Pituopus there than you have in the in the um, you know the, the, the northern Mexican and Texas you know plains, etc. Um, you've got different rattlesnakes. You've got um, <clears throat> so it just it wouldn't be surprising at all if that is a, that mountain range was a barrier to gene flow, which yeah, which is leading to or already has led to speciation you know um so we're interested in and in maybe doing some getting some blood from or dna from some of his captives and um and and just doing like a quick and dirty like mitochondrial dna experiment just to see how different they are you mm -hmm. know as one marker i guess um, do you know which locality or group the the hypos albinos came out of originally i do know that they originally came out of no i say i know i was told that they originally came out of europe <laughs> so just like the some of the albino subox yeah they, there's the Euro european line yeah supposedly they were born in serendipitously in captivity you know mm -hmm. yeah um, I'm kind of surprised there aren't really any other bear morphs that I know of. Well, Tim Spuckler has the, uh, he has an anery or what he thinks to, you know, what, what is thought to be an anery. Um, wow, as, far cool. as, as far as we know, that's the only one that exists. So, and I think he actually just paired, well, he had a picture of it with a, with one of the albinos. Um, but I don't know if, if that snake is old enough to breed or not. I think it's a male, but. Oh, it's pretty wild. Ooh, I would love to see that. Yeah. And I would not be opposed to breeding those into the Mexican ones just to see what an anery Mexican one looks like. <laughs> see, and like we were talking about the locality thing and how extreme do people get. And I know we've had this conversation with Rob Stone and stuff and Stone tells me not to worry about it. But like I say it gets ridiculous, but then I don't want to pair my Loma Altas to my Mexican stuff. Yeah. And I don't want to mix those things. But at the same time, a Baird is, you know, a Baird is a Baird. Yeah. Why not? I think it's, and then what, the way I explained it to Rob is I just think after years of seeing the Alterna guys and some of those other, you know, Southwest Texas species focused people get so hardcore into like the locality thing and exact, you know, coordinates as far as where it came from that to me, mixing it up just feels wrong. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know there's plenty enough people out there that that are interested in bears and want some that they wouldn't care yeah and i would just love to see what it would what would happen i had right. i had uh an albino one 
that I got in the early 2000s that I was going to pair with a Davis Mountain animal mm-hmm. that I got from Troy Hibbets. And um, ended up going to grad school and then got rid of everything, and I didn't end up breeding them. Um, but it was just I just wanted to see what an albino bear dye would look like uh, that that was uh, that had the Davis Mountains kind of mm-hmm. like that dark red, dark red, dark black, and chocolate that that they have in them. Um, yeah, I'm really I'm really anxious to, to pair that with the Loma Alta stuff. Yeah, and see that you know yeah. what that what that would bring out. Mm-hmm. And some of those ones, those bear dye from on that eastern side, can get really big. I've heard. Mm-hmm. Like six feet. Wow. Yeah, wow. that would be cool to see. <laughs> and, and just just talking about, you know, I don't want to say crossing localities, but there's no reason, in my personal opinion, there's no reason why, like for example, you know, Justin has hesitation about breeding Loma Altas to, <clears throat> to something else, you know, and there's no reason why you couldn't skip a season, skip a year, and then in that time frame seek out another type locality that you'd hope to raise and or breed back to say the Loma Altas, right? So like yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking at that with some of my stuff now and just talking from people overseas. It's like some of the species I have that are supposed to be the same locality and they're, they're definitely not just by f- visual appearance. Mm-hmm. So it's like, do I seek out a similar looking animal of that locality or do I just breed what I have now? And either hold back or sell off what's where, and then in hopes that later on acquire the quote unquote correct right. locality, right. which may never, fir- which may never show up, which may never right. show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was my argument for it. You know, with doing it with Rob was, at, you know, at the same time they're Bairds. It's not going to matter because nobody cares about Bairds. So, <laughs> uh, but but they are because of this show, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hundred percent. Think that's about why, how many. That's why I started how, the Bairds group. It's a secret group that's on Facebook. It's like I got enough friends now that message me pictures of their Bairds because they got some because of me talking about them. I was like, why don't we just post these all in the same place? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that one Baird eye I found, besides the one that crawled into the kitchen of the house that I was living, <laughs> um, it was a, a youngster, and it was um, just south of Fort Davis. In Muskies Canyon, mm-hmm. um, and it was at we were walking um, along a rock cut uh, on the side of the road, and uh, <clears throat> just happened to look down, and bottom two thirds of its the posterior two thirds of its body was anchored on the ground, but its its neck and head were like just resting, looking up on the face of that chocolate colored rock there, and. Um, put my flashlight up and noticed right just four feet above this bear drat snake was a bat resting on the rock. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So you were talking earlier, Justin, you know, uh, both of you were talking about how, you know, are bears, you know, rat snakes rare, you know, why, why does it seem like in Texas, at least that, uh, that they seem to be so hit and mess as far as finding them. Or is there something else about their ecology that just makes them not found that often? Maybe like liar snakes, you know? Some people have speculated that that liar snakes might be bat specialists, you know, mm-hmm. um, once they become adults. Which wouldn't um, surprise me one bit, just given their, you know, the the way they yeah. are, you know, the, right. the yeah. and, and all that stuff. 
And in Trans-Pecos rat snakes in Baja, California, rat snakes closest living relative, you know, the Pseudolaphe uh, phasins and Pseudolaphe flabirufa, there's of the phasins variety that, that are in Yucatan, um, they're, as adults, they're, there's some localities where they're essentially just pure bat eaters. They just live inside these limestone bat caves, like, and they just catch bats all night long, you know? <laughs> um, and you have to go in the caves, caves to see them. But subox have been seen doing the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, catching bats from <clears throat> coming out of their roosts. Um, and, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Baird Eye or, you know, John Cargis, uh, who used to work for the Nature Conservancy of Texas for like 30 something years. He's actually, he, um, he grew up right around here in Fort Worth. Um, he uh, he kind of jokes, you know, calls them Baird's bat snakes <laughs> uh, and Trans-Pecos bat snakes, you know. But I think there's probably more than a grain of truth to that. Mm-hmm. With yeah. the uh, with the exception of the species that are hunting bats, for lack of a better word, in the open, uh, those ones that you were speaking about, like in the caves and stuff, have they adapted a lighter coloration or a different scale texturing much like the Ridley eye per se. Um, like like they don't need to be out in the bush so they don't really have a patterning or they, they don't have darker hues to them because they don't need to camouflage, they don't need to soak up sun or what have you. Right. Did, has that been noticed at all with them or no? Well, it's interesting you bring that up. Right? When we say Ridley, you're talking about those uh, those Asian rat snakes, right? Yeah, yeah, the, cave yeah the cave dwellers, yeah. Yeah, the cave dwelling rats. Um, <clears throat> well, Blonde Transpagos rat snakes are from a purely limestone area. And there's these Yuma mouse-eared bats um, that are Yuma myotis bats that uh, have been roosting underneath some of the uh, uh, bridges or canyons um, in Presidio County, just like, you know, just west of Big Bend National Park. Um, and Daryl Eby, who who's lived there since like 2008 in Terlingua have seen something like eight different blondes, you know, since he mo- he's moved there. One of them was catching bats from underneath the bridge. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So that's the place I really want to go to, too, is Terlingua. Just seeing the pictures in the book, you know, with the old like rundown buildings and stuff. Yeah. It just looks like everything just got upped and abandoned and everyone just left. You know? Yeah. Like old ghost town from like the old West kind of thing. <laughs> it's all made out of that yellow rock, which looks like the yellow blonde, you know, themselves. So yeah. but it could also be that the blondes are maybe, maybe they just lost their pattern because, uh, because they're in bat caves a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder about the, the you know, the Baird Eye. Um, if there would be any evidence of that. I mean. Did you ever? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it, I, just before the show, you had said something about um, um, calcium. Um, yeah, yeah, that was something I was curious about because there was an article in Reptiles back in 2007 or 8 on Baird's that I want to say was was written by, is it Meeker? Uh, Marker, Gerald Marker probably? I think so. Um, yeah. 
and I've read that before. They they talked about adding liquid calcium to females, like for the, in their water dish. Yeah. And I haven't heard of anybody doing that with any other rat snakes. And so I wondered if maybe because they they would be eating more of a you know a, a saurian diet or lizards and stuff would be more of a popular food choice just given the availability. If maybe having to add that calcium is what we're making up for in the lack of of that. I wonder if it's that or is another idea. What if it's because, like, let's say, because when you when you find bear dye, with the exception of the Chisos Mountains in Big Bend and the Davis Mountains, it seems like most bear dye habitat is um, like Langtree, you know, <laughs> or like 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 limestone rock cuts and limestone cliffs to the tenth power. You know, it's mm-hmm. just very like scenic, kind of like very like. Um, um, pitted limestone habitat and what is limestone it's cal it's calcium basically right it's calcarium oh, yeah. yeah so and and you know limestone that's that's why most bat caves i'm pretty sure are limestone because because it dissolves in water right mm-hmm. over eons yeah and into calcium right and so you get a lot of hard water deposits in that type of uh, environment um um and so it makes me wonder if maybe if if there is some if you know where there's smoke maybe there's some fire as far yeah. as that's concerned if uh, if female bears do need more calcium in captivity maybe it has something to do with the fact that their the calcium is just super abundant where they come from in the wild right. and so you maybe know a combination I mean? of both yeah yeah maybe a combination of both yeah yeah I don't know I just that's something that I've I you know I've when I've read other articles about other North American rat snakes. You know, I've never seen it mentioned with any other species, but Baird's I've, there's been at least a couple articles I've read where they were like, they need extra calcium, you know, and my female laid and I, I just recently after this, this first clutch started given, uh, you know, some liquid calcium injected into the mice. Um, mm-hmm. But that first clutch she laid is honestly probably the best, like healthiest looking clutch I've ever seen in person. I mean, they are just big, pearly, just rock solid in terms of how they look so uh she looks yeah. like she's going into a prelay for that the second clutch i think she double clutched um i'm about 90 percent sure she's got another another batch on the way um but yeah i don't i mean like like i said that's just something i've only seen with bears is people saying extra calcium and, uh, <laughs> I don't yeah yeah um and boy i love their eggs those big old chalky white eggs mm-hmm. <clears throat> Because I would assume with subox it would be the same. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Hell, even all turn on any of that stuff. Yeah, I would assume with um, with subox and yeah, any of those other critters that come from that area, they'd probably be the same. Yeah. Um, I know, I know. With with hognose snakes, they often have like little windows in their eggs. I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. You, know? Um, you guys were smoking cigars and stuff like that, so I started getting jealous. So I'm gonna grab a. We love our cigars. <laughs> I don't even know where Phil went. Phil just up and disappeared. <laughs> <clears throat> How often did you ever run across any intergrades between like Texas rats and any of the other 
the mingling of the pantherophis? I never did. Um, that's my knowledge. And I don't know if I was ever in the, the contact zone of where those two integrate, like, like looking for them. Um, but it is interesting. I did, I did read that paper that, that proves basically that they do hybridize, you know, mm-hmm. did you come across that one? Um, I want to say I've read it at one point. Yeah. A while though, but I asked because I have a pair. They're undocumented of Bairds. They have the classic Mexican gray head, completely yeah. different colored body. But they also, and I know I messaged you about this. It's probably been at least a year, and you, you know, I also messaged Troy Hibbets about it. But they have like this weird shorter face. And I just call it like short face syndrome because that's it's not like that long sort of coffinish head that you get with some of the like the Texas beards. Uh-huh. It's a much shorter, rounder face. And then these ones also they have they feel more keeled. And so I got and these as undocumented. Here? Well, they're they're I don't know. They just they oh. were bought as I bought them as beards at a show. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering if this pair is actually an intergrade because like my other bears, they don't have the, the slight keeledness to them. Uh-huh. You know, there's some other things that just make, and even the pattern, I'll have to send you a picture of them, but I just, I'm really, and that makes me hesitant to pair them because like, I don't, Hey, I'm just, I'm not really into hybrids. I don't have any desire to, to do anything with them. Um, you know, outside of chondros because they look awesome when you do that. Uh, but I don't know. Cause I look at pictures of some of the Texas rats and I look at these but then mm-hmm. I see some pictures of some of the Mexican types too, as far as bears go, and it also kind of matches to where I'll, I just I I don't know I can't tell. So that's one of the reasons I brought up that question was you know have you seen any intergrades and was it a weird? Color? I haven't yet. I haven't yet. Uh, it's very interesting though, um, and I would think it would be a fairly inexpensive and somewhat easyish DNA test. Yeah, and I I contemplated that because it's been a while since I talked to him. But Ben Morrill, who does the DNA testing for you know sex and stuff in the sheds, finding getting the shed from from one of my animals that that I'm questionable about, and then getting one of the sheds from one of the one of the Mexican bears, and then finding someone to get me a shed of a Texas rat, and sending the three and see if he can put those puzzle pieces together. I don't know how how easy or difficult that would be, but. Well, I'm guessing in that in that paper that looked at uh, the hybridization, um, uh, the genetics of the hybridization in the contact zone between Veridae and Texas Texas rats, that there's probably the primers in there for for both species. So all you'd have to do is, I assume, uh, I don't, I'm not really a molecular biologist, but I try to be sometimes. But and yeah. COVID happened, and I didn't get to I didn't get to finish any of my projects, but. <laughs> find that paper um, again and if not i'm sure travis wyman has access to it or something yeah another train coming by train time i told i, I looked so unnatural on it sorry i said i just i just want answers yeah, yeah. I want to know what's going on. 
Someone asked on a forum, can you breed a ball python? Can you breed a ball python corn snake hybrid? Can you breed a ball python corn snake hybrid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the internet. <laughs> so yeah, that's another the reason why I've always loved subox is because they're so genetically distinct from mm -hmm. all of the other colubrids in that tribe. Just just by virtue of having a different set of number of chromosomes. You know, it'd be like a horse and a donkey, you know, makes a sterile mule kind of thing. So mm -hmm. that's a fairly hard line as far as speciation is concerned. Um, being a distinct species, I would think, because <clears throat> just from the different number of chromosomes uh, not aligning, you know, um, with anything else. And you bred them at one point, right? Subox with something yeah. else? No, just no, subox, period. Yeah, yeah, I bred subox for sure, yeah. And uh, how, how, like, because... That was something we were having a conversation about with the other day with somebody and someone, I think it was Matt most was saying, you know, it's odd that people don't seem to be very consistent as far as producing those. Is, is that your hmm. experience with them? No. Once I started breeding them, I, it was pretty easy. Again, I, like I said, I was being paid in mice. <laughs> I have like an endless supply of mice and fat subox. Um, and I was living in Utah, and you know it might be important for them to, to be brumated. Mm -hmm. um, Dave and Tracy Barker have bred them without brumating them for a long time. And uh, I've read the same they, thing with Bairds. People say you can brumate them, don't brumate them, whatever. Yeah, and I, I tend to think snakes probably don't need that. I mean, why would you need? Why would you need? Why would you need cold, harsh weather? <laughs> I mean, I do think life. they're like it does. It does trigger something. I do think it does yeah. help your chances yeah. of getting stuff to pair. I think you could at any point pair, keep corn snakes together, and you're gonna get eggs at some point. Yeah, but I think what it is 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 that the snakes or the the animals in general need a uh, need to know what what season it is. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, and like just right. going back to like uh, uh, geckos, right? I do a lot of gecko stuff. Looking at papers that have been published on testicular activity in relation to ovarian follicle development, and like months of the year, and it's like okay, testicular activity starts here, and then right after it, girls start ovulating. Like it has to coincide. So yeah. if so. They may not need the, the hibernation per se. They may not need that right. that hardcore drop, but it's mm -hmm. got to be something to tell them, oh, wow, it's that time of the year. I got to get the ball yeah. rolling, you know? Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I, I think that just certain species need that more than others. Like, for example, diamond pythons. Right. Like, you got to cool diamond pythons, not because they need to be quote unquote cold, but they need to know that when it starts to warm back up, now it's the time for me to get my ass in gear. Well, even yeah. brettles, you know, Casey's mentioned yeah. he has to get brettles ridiculously cold to get, especially, you know, males have to be a little older and you have to get them really cold to get them to do anything. But I've also heard people say I bred them without doing anything out of the norm as far as how I would cool, you know, any of my other carpets. So I don't yeah. know. I think, I think where you live 
makes a big difference. You know, yeah, and that makes sense because deer I come from places that get cold. Right. They tend to be higher elevation species, you know, and yeah. uh, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you can find them all the way up there at that Davis Mountain Observatory, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and it stays. It doesn't get above usually, you know, eighty or eighty-five degrees up there. I don't think, maybe ninety. Well, you know, I think it even it even coincides with like our good buddy Ryan Reed, who's bred Heloderma several different mm -hmm. times, talking about mm -hmm. how you don't necessarily need a dynamic temperature drop to you know, symbolize a season, but you need to have a consistent night drop that would then raise up to a basking temperature and then fall back down that night, you know, or like yeah. some of the, the girdle tail lizards from South Africa that, you know, my friend Marcus and I were doing is that you're not going to get any activity unless you have a 10 to 15 degree nightly change. Now it doesn't mean that it has to be that cold, but it has to be, there has to be a dynamic change nightly, a and, noticeable and drop, a noticeable drop, right. Yeah. Or at least for them to notice it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's more in yeah. line with, with what they'd experience naturally anyways. Sure. You know, it's not going to stay 60 something, you know, hmm. or even lower than that, you know, yeah. night and day, it's going to warm up some. And right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the cradle of their existence out there. You know, it's like uh, how many millions of years have they been dealing with, you know, little ice ages or. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then like, I, I look at yeah. like uh Sebrus, you know, black rattlesnakes in, in, in northeastern Arizona, where there's a dramatic snowfall in those pine tree forests, you know. It's slightly yeah. higher elevation. It's slightly colder. The snow just sticks. But they still have spikes in temperature. It's just not enough temperature to really melt everything per se. And that's mm -hmm. why, like, you know, you've seen black rattlesnakes sitting out on a little, on a little rock that's not covered in snow because it's still getting whatever – 70 degrees it needs to be and then the minute it gets off that rock now it's going back to the cold weather so yeah, yeah I, I i'm I, i'm in the belief that it doesn't necessarily have to be dramatic it just has to be something to let them know hey i gotta get my ass in gear yeah i agree yeah i and one of the reasons i agree with that is i i, I swear just about every year and this has happened to me too uh I get somebody email me saying that they lost a subock and brumation, you know, and um, I just, I think it tends to be what happens. I think is just, you know, we take away freedom. We take away choices of temperature, for instance, in captivity. I mean, I mean, hell I get, I get uh, and fairly annoyed and anxious when I can't get outside for a few minutes and get some sunlight, you know, <laughs> why wouldn't a snake, yeah. you know, it, yeah. they can't escape you know, whatever it is to maintain homeostasis and happiness, Yeah, <clears throat> you know, so, and like, yeah. I think it also, and I'll ask you this because you've bred subox and you've had, would you say 80 of them at one point? Yeah. I had 85. Yeah. At one point, yeah. So like that's, that's a cause example is let me ask you a lot of the Morelia community, you know, there's a, a big debate on, do you start, temperature you know seasonal temperature drops or cycling at a, at an early age to replicate that in the wild because mm. you figure a baby's going to get cold the same way an adult's going to get cold in the wild or do we keep it at a comfortable temperature throughout all of its childhood and adolescence into adulthood and once an adult do we then do the temperature drops to instigate a, a breeding cycle and it's like well so many people have done this nobody's really made a decision like to 
to, is it more beneficial to do the annual temperature drops or does it really not matter until they're sexually mature? Mm. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, I, personally, I think it's like this is, is we're again, it all falls down to us keeping snakes in boxes, right? Yes. So if I can guarantee, not guarantee, but if I can increase my odds of being awesome and just keeping it at a reasonable temperature to maintain a healthy animal. And then when the breeding time comes, then do the drops to instigate a, a breeding cycle. Well, then I would just do that. I mean, that's my personal mm -hmm. opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if but if somebody says, no, you're going to have low fecundity rate, you're going to have infertility, you're going to have birth defects or whatever it is because they didn't experience those cooler cycles in a younger age, well, then obviously it's a no-brainer. You have to do what's right. Mm -hmm. But I just think so many people, you know, they kept an animal at 80 degrees for the first five to six years of its life, whatever it is. And they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to get little Charlie a, a girlfriend this this year and, uh, you know, at Tinley. And they buy a, an adult male, throw it in, and everything's awesome. So mm -hmm. obviously I'm sure it's species-specific, even locality-specific. But mm. I don't know. It's just something yeah. I'm thinking about. I mean, I know I get, like I say, if it's super hot, like for me in the house, 80 degrees is, or 75 degrees, anything warmer than 75 degrees at night, I can't sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need it cold. And I know, I know a lot of people who they can. They can sleep perfectly fine when it's 85, almost 90 degrees. You know, right. I can't. I just can't be comfortable. I would right. be a poor breeder in captivity if I were required, <laughs> if I were required to uh sleep at you know 80 degrees every night um <clears throat> but i mean in your yeah. in your sub box that you held back for example you had you had a lot of individual specimen did you did you cool down the entire collection all at once because it's just easier and they can handle it or did you say are oh, you know what these pairs are breeding this year or, or i'm gonna drop these guys and raise these guys and and did you did you feather the temp so to speak um, yeah, I tended to, um, I tended to go at first I would, after I lost one sub in the winter, um, just inexplicably died. I started to keep, go ahead and open the window in Utah where, where it was just the screen, but cold air was coming into the snake room, um, and going out and turn the lights off and everything and put a blanket over the windows to, to block out the light. But I would sometimes, I think I would keep their under tank heating on, you know, or on, on the racks um, so that they would have some temperature choice, you know? Right. Um, I think sure. I did that. But I also, just to answer your question a little better, I would keep, say my two and a half to hatchlings, everything from hatchling to, you know, say sub adult in, in a separate room and just keep feeding them while trying to maintain, maintain my, uh, uh, or introduce my adults to the, the seasonal cues, including the temperature drops for, okay. you know, six weeks at least in the winter. You know? yeah. 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 I just, my, I, what were you going to say, Justin? My, my take on the, on the room thing and this is just in my experience, like everything in that room is getting colder during the colder months. Just simply from the fact that 
you know, we don't run the heaters, like the heat as much. We keep the house pretty much cooler. And so even the ambient in the, in the room just drops even a little bit and it stays yeah. that way consistently. So I think they do experience a drop, at least in my setup. It's going to be different with someone who has a basement or, you know, a separate building or whatever. But um, I also think that photo period doesn't get enough credit for having mm-hmm. a, a, a a part in everything. Agreed. That's why yeah, that's agreed. why I'm not into the, you know, the completely opaque tubs. I'm like I feel like light cycle, especially when you're talking about shorter days, longer days, I feel like that that does play a factor in that. Yeah. And so even when I'm cooling stuff in my closet, I try to leave that light on during the day and then when I get home it's dark, I go and turn it off. So I I do mm-hmm. like photo period I feel like just gets completely ignored. Um Right. You know, unless you're keeping stuff that that has lights, you know, be it some lizards or something like that, uh, right? Like with snakes and the racks set, setups and stuff like that, I feel like people, it, it just like I have a window in my room, um, so it experiences natural daylight, you know, in the twelve hour, eight hour cycles, um, and I think that that does play a part in it. And I think, like I said, those babies, yeah, they're not getting as cold as the adults do, um, but they do experience a drop. You know, it's not going to be a, a lot, but that ambient temperature in my room does drop. It is not nearly as warm in there in the cooler months as it is in the summer months. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would agree majorly in that. Uh, yeah. The, the, the light. And obviously, obviously it works. It's, it's how much. Yeah, exactly. Just the light from the window going from what is it in Utah? It was probably like 10, 10 hours or maybe. Yeah. 10, hour, 10 and a half hours of daylight in the winter to like 14 hours or more of daylight in the summer, you know, I mean, that would make a, that would make a big difference um, for their seasonal cues. And what interesting, I think it's just like how much of this we take for granted because it obviously works, you know, it obviously, because you, you, you hear stories from, you know, the old timers who were trying to do this back in the sixties and stuff, you know, and they, nobody knew how to breed snakes Mm -hmm. (laughs) of any sort. And um, and then people like Joseph Laszlo, you know, came along, you know, uh, and other keepers at different zoos and such and private keepers who were starting to breed stuff in the 70s. And then it started to catch on, you know, and started to have these, uh, you know, reptile breeding shows and conferences and stuff. Um, You know, different keepers like Ernie Wagner and others who would who would kind of figured it all out. And I mean, obviously it works. Brumation, you know, brumation obviously mm-hmm. works because um, because that seems to be one of the things that kind of turned um, uh, the the stroke of luck that that breeders that herpetoculturists needed to start breeding things in captivity. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm that, also, uh, that that book on the reptile and amphibian medicine surgery, right? Snakes produce melatonin. Yeah. They have a circadian oh, right. rhythm like we do. Yeah. So why wouldn't we think that light plays a factor in, in even their daily activity, yeah. not even necessarily yeah. breeding? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We also think that we also don't always pay attention to just the weather outside. And I mean, mm-hmm. that may be a blessing for some species. It may be a curse for others. But like, I mean, I, I've kept puff adders almost my entire adult life, whether they were mine or somebody else's. And they are the perfect barometer 
for a drop in barometric pressure. Because the minute the barometric pressure drops, those males are like, hey, girl, what's up? What's going on? How's it going? How's it going? How's it going? And it's like, okay, the puffs are going nuts. I might as well pair some other it's stuff time, too and, yeah. and, and, and see what happens. And I can't tell yeah. you, there's been countless species that have that friends and I have bred. It was like, dude, uh, call them up and hey, man, the puff adder's doing backflips, bro. Throw, throw those throw those pythons together, see what happens. Yep. You know, tree boas so, like corrales yeah. chondros oh, yeah. if it starts raining especially those guys in florida like ian oh yeah oh yeah it starts raining he's like dude i'm putting tree bows together because yep. that's the time this like hurricane season he loves it yep because he's like that's when i start <laughs> yeah. putting everything together yeah the biggest litter yeah. of puffs that my friends and i ever had was from oh geez hurricane wilma and i think that was 2005 or 2006 and the, we put puffs together that just because it was a hurricane, we we're boxing stuff up just in case, you know, the roof fell off, you know, and uh, we're yeah. containering them. And they must have locked up in, in the wooden box, you know, during the hurricane. And <clears throat> I think we got 63 babies out of that one female. Mm. Yeah. So and that wow. was just that was just luck. Wow. Like we didn't cool them or feed them or just we just put them together and the storm did the rest. So. Makes me wonder what the evolutionary like reason is for that. Like if if uh, if it's if just instinctively the snakes know, oh, we're we're about to not be you know low on water. You know, yeah, <laughs> I think I think food availability is a big part of it. Yeah, because <laughs> with chondros, like they breed in the in the rainy season because rain brings food. Yeah, and that's like okay, that's the time that this is our window to make more of us. Yeah, yep. yeah. Food availability. Yeah. yeah. Babies are going to have something to eat. Yeah, because insects, insect populations go way up after the mm-hmm. rain. I can't remember Justin. Everything, everything is insects. Yeah, I, I can't remember Justin. Who do we have on air that we were talking about how, you know, the, the monsoon season or the rainy season or whatever, it, it, it brings the, the time of good and plenty. Like, mm-hmm. who are we talking to about that? I can't remember now. It's probably Harlan. It may have that been. was I don't know that was I mean that was pretty early on you know yeah because I just remember like we're talking like you just mentioned insects insects lead mm-hmm. to to lizards and frogs lizards and frogs lead to snakes snakes lead to birds and so on and so forth and it's a feast or famine kind of thing yeah. I think even here in the states here in like the southeast we see a spike in snake activity in spring and in fall and that's like the two periods where it's like time for food yeah time for food you know and I don't think it's a coincidence at all. You know, I think that the yeah. seasonal uh, rainfall plays a factor in, in this stuff, no matter where you are, even in the places that hardly get any rain. Yeah. So then, so then let me use this as a segue, Justin, are we going to, are we going to talk to, uh, to Dusty about the whole lack of females? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think in the book you mentioned, or maybe I read it somewhere else. I'm pretty sure it was in the book that, almost that a very large majority of the subox that are found while cruising are almost always males. Oh, um, yes. Yes. Male males do move around more. And, and we, and, and now that has been confirmed because my book came out in 2008 and yeah, and I was just sharing general trends and people still yeah. know, you know, yeah. but, um, in 2012, Arturo Roca's thesis came out and basically showed that females like to stay kind of put. You know, <laughs> they're not they're not out around looking as much as males. So I, th- I think that makes sense. 
So is the is the lack of availability of females in the in the hobby, in the trade, in the community, what have you, is that a representation of the herpers not knowing how to find females? Or is that because there is less females out there? I think it's a supply and demand thing, honestly. Okay. Yeah, maybe. Maybe both. Maybe, uh, yeah, and maybe uh, people just like to hoard more females, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I think I be. think that's the case, because anytime I see a female subwalk for sale on Morph Market, it's gone within 24 hours. Mm. Like, mm. males yeah. everywhere. Males will sit there for two weeks, three weeks, whatever. Females, gone. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's crazy. I think, well, and I, I make the joke that it's, you probably have a better chance of finding a, an adult female green tree for sale than you do an adult female subwalk, because they just, huh. they, they go so fast. Well, it's yeah. like uh, when when Casey and I and visited Billy back in February, we went to the Tampa Repticon, and there was an adult female subock for sale. I think she was like eight hundred and fifty bucks. Oh yeah, wow. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yep. Um, so, well, they do the kind of have this. Hot. Yeah, they have this kind of this. I don't know that I necessarily say it's like a myth, but this general notion that they're they can be trickier to breed than sort of your standard corn snake or you know other pantherophis i mean i don't once that again I don't, yeah yeah i think so maybe i think so because um hmm i think because maybe um because they don't have big clutches so i think that plays a part in it is just the fact that there, yeah. that's maybe that's part of the availability issue i mean that's what i find with the bairds is like i have people who want bairds i only have six egg clutches at a time <laughs> i can only get to them so fast you know right right yeah um <clears throat> and, and i think i think part of it is just is just the remoteness of subbox habitat maybe mm -hmm. you know and so it might be a little bit more difficult for people to replicate whatever kind of environmental cues that the that subox need. Um, and a lot of people have had subox die off in captivity from not giving them enough ventilation. At least yeah, you push that in the book a lot too. Was well, yeah, there was a veterinarian whose book I read, John Rossi. You know, he did a few mm -hmm. books on snakes. He he did an experiment for some books that he wrote in the 90s, I think. And you probably guys, you guys know probably know these books. There were these green and, green and black books that were published by Krieger, I think. It was like a husbandry of all the snakes in the United States. And he had this experiment where he just tried to breed every single snake species in the U.S. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was really cool. Um, and uh, and he, he was very emphatic about how Subox, first of all, how the number one reason that when he would do um, postmortems, on dead snakes in captivity, the number. Let me, let me shut the door. Train time. The number one reason that that snakes would die is because of ventilation issues and bacteria, unnatural levels of bacteria and types of bacteria build up where you don't have free airflow. Mm -hmm. and, and just in my mind, I mean, for, yeah, I really did kind of like stick, like harp on that in the book at the time because it just seemed to like make sense to me. It makes total sense because you're yeah. thinking about where they're coming from. They're not coming from a humid area. Right. Yeah. 
you know. And and with corn snakes and stuff like that, you know, where uh, a significant portion of the United States population has things like corn snakes in their backyard, you know, it's probably a lot easier to just throw corn snakes together almost any time of year and get eggs, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas with subox, very few people live in subox habitat, you know, and so. Um, even in El Paso, which is a big city, I don't think, I think it's hard to find subox in El Paso. They're just, they're one of those species that decrease species with human population. Um, you, you can't find them in your yard. Like you can say a black racer in Florida, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very interesting. Um, One of the most interesting things was just the fact that they have their own variety of tick. Yeah, that's that. There's that too. Yeah, that I, that was very interesting as well. Yeah. And who the hell figured that out? Like, what possessed someone to go? This is a interesting tick. I'm going to study this and then be like, I don't right. find this on anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that same genus of tick. Um. It's. So the closest living relative of that tick species is on another snake that also lives in caves and eats bats. Really? Yeah. And it's the Epricades down in Cuba. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So the Cuban boas that are in the rainbow boa family mm-hmm. um, has these ticks on them as a, as a sister species or at least in the same genus as these they used to call them Apanama. They might be Ambaloma or something like that. Now is the genus of tick, but uh, yeah. So they're they're ticks that specialize on sucking blood from cave dwelling reptiles, snakes. I suppose. Wow. I suppose. Did, did they know what the benefit of that is? Like, is there something different about the blood of those animals that, for some reason, um, I I. Okay, so um, Bill Degenhart, who was at the University of New Mexico for a long time, he works in Big Bend National Park, and uh, he was in Carl Caulfield's book, Snakes Keeper in the Cap. Um, he was the person, he was the, the park biologist in at Big Bend uh, when when Carl Caulfield visited Big Bend in 1957. And he was the person who basically figured out the life cycle of those ticks. And supposedly they need dampness and darkness and humidity like you would get in a cave type environment Mm -hmm. in order to complete their life cycle. Hmm. So it's, it's just happenstance that they happen to find an animal that maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's a complete struggle. Look. Yeah. Yeah. Cause how many, how many vertebrates, right? live in caves like constantly and i highly doubt a tick is going to easily be able to get onto a bat in a cave like that yeah right yeah i always find it amazing how uh, a because they have to lay their eggs in the soil and bats are probably not hanging out in the soil that much you know yeah yeah no i was gonna say it's, it's amazing how a specialized you know arachnid like that can even find its host mm-hmm you know, and you think about how many yeah. million, millions of eggs, bi- billions of eggs are laid, and how many of those arachnids actually make it to adulthood because they latched onto a subog. It's like sea yeah. turtles. 
It's crazy. <laughs> what did you say about sea turtles? I said it's just like sea turtles. Tons oh, of babies. Because no. sheer numbers, but only a handful are like, you know, the percentages oh, yeah, of the ones yeah, that actually yeah. make it. <laughs> right. Yeah. What do they call it? Like K strategist versus R strategist or whatever. Like the, Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it is amazing to think about. Um, have you ever seen what a tick does? At least the ones that live out like in grasslands and stuff, like when they're, they can wait forever before they mm -hmm. finally get their first blood meal, like forever, like months apparently, you know? <laughs> yeah. And they'll just like hang out with their, like their arms spread out like this, like. Whatever they grab, they grab. Yeah. 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 It's, creepy. it's really creepy looking. If you, <laughs> if you ever see like an image of like what they do, like in a, in a textbook or something like that, you know, it's like, uh, well, it's interesting talking about that because we just had our little book club episode of Snakes and Stogies mm -hmm. Monday night and Spillover talks about Lyme disease and the story behind that, you know, and, and the ticks and the deer and the, you know, mm. it's, it tells you the whole backstory of, of how that came to be sort of a public health concern in that area. And it's really interesting. That's a great book. If you haven't, if you haven't read it, Spillover. I have it. I just, oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> David Quammen, I, ha I have spillover audio books, uh, but yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to check that one out. Um, I think I, I finally got it. I, I had known about it 10 years ago and it always looked very interesting. And then, and then COVID happened. I was like, okay, I got to get this now. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really good. And it, you know, given, I mentioned this Monday night, but like given what we've been dealing with, you know, it, it opens your eyes. Cause it does, it talks about, you know, Hendra and SARS and hay fever and, um, yeah, just various outbreaks throughout history and modern history, and uh, you know what the cause was and how it s spilled over from animal populations into human. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I took a zoonotic diseases class in in, in college, and it was, uh, and I was a veterinary technician for my early twenties for a short while, and I hated it, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, worked, I worked at an exotic animal clinic and they would sometimes get primates in there. And uh, wow. it was just, it was very telling whenever the veterinarian, when the doctors would double suit up. <laughs> it's like the double beginning mask. of 28 days later with the chimps and the animal <laughs> activist people trying to save them. And they, Oh yeah. Yeah. Double, double mask, double gloves, double everything, because there's more zoonotic disease. It makes, makes sense. They're more related. They're, we're primates too. So, you know, there's yeah. going to be more transmissible diseases between us. Um, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It talks about Ebola a lot and how Ebola, the, you know, the outbreaks, A, how that, that virus is so effective and B, sort of how every major outbreak pretty much almost always can be traced back to bushmeat uh -huh. and chimps. Yep. So. Wow. It's very interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to sit down on those book clubs sometime. Yeah, man. Yeah. I just, I need to buy more books to be able to, to bring more to the table. Like <laughs> yeah, I brought, I, uh, I brought the, my remaining ones to the last episode, but we just do a little round table of, of our favorite books and why we like them. Oh, uh. yours was on the first, first round table that we did of that. Really? Yep. It was. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm excited to be writing again. It was like I, I uh, Troy Hibbets and I had actually talked about doing a, 
a rat snake of North rat snakes of North America book or maybe like colubrids of North America book or something like that. And it's just like I would always start like the start it and then like it just didn't feel right, didn't feel like the right time. But like um, this horn lizard conservation book came, idea came along and it's just like yeah, this is it. So mm-hmm. it's so much easier know. to crank out and do when it's something you're you're actively like oh yeah about yeah. Yeah, you know, I go through phases where I'm like beards, beards, beards. Then I go through phases where I'm like condors, 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 and you know, it just kind of s- revolves. Uh huh. I know Phil does. A, Phil has the same thing, you know, with all. Hundred percent. Yeah. Can yeah. I uh, can I ask you a few uh, like author questions? Absolutely. So have you? Um, I I I try to fancy myself a writer to to the best of my abilities. Um, but have you ever found it where you started to write something, whether it be a journal or a book or just just personal notation, whatever it may be, and you find that someone has done it at the same time you have, and they their book came out first or their paper came out first? How do you personally deal with that? Or has it not happened to you? Um, well, I don't know that that's happened to me. Okay. I, well, so, okay, so when I was 18 in the late 90s, I just, there was, my dad was just having this talk with me about how setting some life goals and how he, he, he got his dream job by having like short term goals and like, you know, one year goals and like five year goals, kind of like things. And he would just read them every night, you know, and stick to them. And, uh, and so I did the same thing. And one of those goals I had was to write a book on Contra Pythons. This was yeah. late 90s. Yeah, so I was a big Chondro Python fan too, and um, and there really wasn't any books back then on Chondro Pythons that was quality. There was a TFH book like Tree Boas and Tree Python. Yeah, I got that I, one. Yeah, we we all have that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was you know not bad or whatever. I, I, I have I had a lot of those TFH books, uh, but I, I just I remember you know thinking okay, I really want to write a book, and con- I really love Chondros, and there's not really a book out there, and um, you know, and then I, um, uh, I, you know, was raised, you know, as you probably guessed, raised Mormon. And so I went, uh, went on a two year mission for that, for the church, for that church and everything. And when I got back by that time, there was a, there was a, um, a German produced, um, and it was in English, but it was German authors mm-hmm. of, uh, pythons and emerald tree boas book and so i was like oh somebody's done that but i always have the fear yeah i always have the fear that somebody's you know going to be you know is working on what i'm working on or um you know that's why um, you do it on the least popular species (laughs) (laughs) most underappreciated stuff like if i did a baird's book no one else is going to take the time to do a baird's book right right present company excluded (laughs) right yeah yeah but you know it's like Honestly, I would love to read somebody else's subbox books. Like, I would love to read yeah, five yeah. books on subbox, all on the same subject, just like just yeah. different perspectives. And you know, this this book, as far as I know, is the first book that um, that deals with like um, land management, wildlife management for horn lizards. Um, and you know. <clears throat> There's but there's several books out there that basically deal with species that live in the same environment and um, like land management for elk, land management collectively managing. Yeah, Yeah. there's several books on like 
uh, wildlife management and land management for quails, you know, and, uh, you know, and I've got all of them. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, because horn lizards basically have the same habitat as quails, um, essentially. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I guess the, to answer your question, Phil, what, what I do with that kind of uh, uh, anxiety is I just, uh, just, just remember that we need all the books. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think people would buy something regardless. It's just like in terms of chondros people always ask you know should i get the jewelander and philip book or should i get the maxwell book and the answer is always get both because yeah why right. not you know, if yeah you, if you really like chondros you're gonna buy both regardless sure you know? yeah and I, I don't even own i just like i just like books about snakes and stuff because i just want to learn about them whether i keep them or not i've got books on you know dave and tracy's you know, ball python book, but I've got other books on ball pythons that I've, I've never even kept the ball pythons really, you know, <laughs> right, right. I just, want, I just want to know just different perspectives and uh, sure. Uh, sure. It's the um, collecting addiction. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 you know, what are we, if, if not informational units, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. our DNA, our very DNA is informational unit you know and it, mm -hmm. that's that's what we're doing right now is exchanging of you know information and um we're just that seems to be what the purpose of life is in some ways you know? yeah uh, collection of knowledge yeah like we, we want our loved ones to know like on our on our deathbeds that we love them you know like we're, we're informational units like we just want to pass on that information at all costs you know right right so books are precious i mean like they're uh you know, like I said, we we're talking about Carl Sagan earlier. You know, I, I want to do. I have a couple Carl Sagan book project ideas that I want to do, but uh, um, but you know, he was famous for talking about how books are basically um, uh, time machines mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. of, of information. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I love so going I, back through those old books and reading. You know, seeing like old taxonomy and stuff, and knowing how much has changed since then, and like just information. It's like, man, it's yeah. 100%. Thinking, of, thinking about the guys that that didn't have the internet and had to do all this by trial and error, year after year, fail, yeah. try it again. You know, Condros specifically. You know, guys like Trooper Walsh and yeah, like literally trial and error, just constant mm -hmm. failure, very little success. And then once they figured it out, that's like they they made it easy for us. But to yeah. appreciate the work that they put into that kind of thing, you know, and even yeah. to, even to go back even farther than than even what we're talking about, like you know. Billy and I are constantly reading old scientific journals and old taxonomy papers because we're taxonomy nuts. And like, I find stuff from the late 1700s and it's talking about how, you know, this one guy was of, of royal family and he was destined to be an admiral, but he didn't want to be a boat guy. He wanted to draw pictures of birds. So he paid pirates to basically swap boats with him so that he could tour around Australia and catch lizards and birds and draw them. And then I guess uh, someone in, in Napoleon's fleet found him and brought him back to France. And like, we have Google, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and like, just to read back on that, I think it's just incredible. Yeah. That, uh, how, how much different it is. You know? It's so fascinating. One of my favorite movies is uh, Master and Commander. Far oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 
because you get that archetype in there, uh, the Darwin type, you know, yeah. naturalist out on this, uh, Her Majesty's ship, whatever it was, the, uh, the surprise, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and he gives him permission to go to the island and, and take notes, you know, and catch stuff. Like, that's... Yeah. You think about heart, that. You, yeah. Think about, like, guys like that, you know, Darwin and him, you know, and then this, you know, Darwin type character, and then... Um, uh, Audubon, Audubon, you know, like yeah. he, he, in the early 1800s, like he had all these amazing drawings that he'd spent years of his life and like nearly wrecked his marriage, um, because he went to Louisiana to like draw all of these birds and stuff, and then you know left his wife, you know, somewhere else in another state or something, you know, and like back east, you know, and and but he believed in himself he believed what he was doing but he needed he knew he needed to go take it abroad and, and uh, he he got on a ship and took all of his paintings you know on a ship back in the early you know mid 1800s early 1800s to to london uh and i'm like how nerve-wracking would that be because you don't have like scanned copies of your paintings you know in case like it floods or something you know i mean yeah like, yeah. yeah yeah so makes you wonder Makes you wonder if if he would still be with his wife if he had a sat phone. (laughs) (laughs) Our buddy in Australia, Scott Iper, wanted to know, he asked about eye shine and subox, and I had mentioned that when you were talking to uh, Pingleton about it, that they do, but it's not in the traditional sense of like tree bows and crocodilians. Okay. Yeah. So, so do tree boas have that that mirror that mirror layer? Yeah, of cells? yeah. They do. Okay, okay. Fascinating. Yeah. So I, I assume that subox don't because Caulfield said so, <laughs> but I don't. But I don't know. You know, I don't know if that's if that's true. But yeah, it seems like whenever you do see those shining eyes at nighttime out in the desert, um, it's because of the um, of just how. Like a snow globe, yeah. <laughs> Their eyes are the you know, dome, domage. Yeah, the domage <laughs> uh, shape of their eyes kind of makes that sort of light kind of uh, reflect it, reflect ah, whatever the word is, reflected and refracted or whatever. Man, it's um, so funny. I was feeding that my small uh, the Wild Rose Pass or Boy Scout Road whatever you like to call it, uh, male. And I opened the tub the other day and he's just sitting there and I just see him. He just cocks his head to the side and just looks at me like a parrot. Okay. So that was really what got me interested in sub art. Yeah. Yeah. Something about them where it's like, they're not looking at you. Like they're looking at you. And I took a complete sub art. (laughs) I haven't had one do the curl though. Like you talked about sort of the, the, the lip curl sort of deal. Oh yeah, like, I haven't seen mine do that yet. And I think a lot of snakes do that, you know. Like, uh, <clears throat> um, back when I was writing that, you know, it was like, oh, you know, sub. If I if I found a note, you know, in Herp Review or something like that, where it says subox do this, I'd be like, oh wow, well, I gotta have a paragraph about how subox do this, and that's probably really unique, you know. And then as time goes by, you realize, well, well a lot of snakes do this kind of thing, you know. But uh, yeah, they do that lip, like you know, kind of stick their lip out a little bit if they get. My Ganyasoma do that a lot. Like they, oh, yeah. they don't open their mouth all the way. They open the back corners, like so. They're kind. Of, it's I can't do it. Right, 
Yeah, yeah, kind of like bizarre, uh, yeah, where they the the front of their mouth is completely like the lips are touching, but the back of the mm-hmm. mouth, yeah, kind yeah, of like, yeah. It's, that's exactly <laughs> like what it is. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, but yeah, seeing my subak do that the other day, I was just like, that's I don't get that <laughs> with the corns and so, and the other stuff. Uh-huh. Like my my buiga, yeah, a little bit. But like the subak, it was just he was totally minding his own business and I opened the tub and I just see him cock his head a little bit to the side and as I see his eye just shift to me. And it's I don't it's, I, Yeah, yeah. I've always I've often wondered about that because it seems like out of all out of all like North American what you'd call like rat snakes, you know, uh subaks are probably one of those ones that have dealt with primates and humans less than and, and, you know, and uh, uh, you know, human primates less than mm-hmm. a lot of other rat snakes have, and that so it makes me sense. just wonder if we're just kind of this curiosity to them, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I've just noticed, like, you know, people always talk about how subox, you know, you can just kind of pick one up in the wild, and they're kind of like, "Hey, where are we going?" You know. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but Asian rat snakes, I've kept a few of those, and man, those guys bite first and then ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know. And, oh yeah. My Jance and I have very and low tolerance for bullshit. A lot of those Asian rat snakes have, have yeah. a lot of those Asian rat snakes have, um, they've been around primates, mm-hmm. you know, that makes total sense. Uh, I never even thought of it like that, but yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe that's why, who knows, but it's just, but even when I'm know. holding mine, you know, I'm holding mine, like they're, they're looking at me and I, it's like, they're almost trying to figure out exactly what's, it's like, are you going to eat me or are you just staring at me? Mm-hmm. Like you can almost see the, the gears turning a little bit. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're literally trying to figure out like what exactly is going on in that moment. And they're just looking at you. Like, like I said, like with the corns and stuff. Yeah. They see you, but they're kind of just moving around, moving like the subox. I pick them up and they just kind of stop. And they're just like, they're looking directly at me. I can't, it's very hard to explain until you see one and have one in your hands, but <laughs> They just, yeah, it's they, almost it, it's almost like you want to turn around and like look if see if there's someone behind you. Like, are you looking like like at me? Like pointing at yourself, like mm-hmm. me? And then the, the <laughs> yeah. rat snake's like, yeah, bro, you. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like the contact tropes of science fiction. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like two species that are curious about each other making mm-hmm. contact and like, mm-hmm. and it going well. Yeah, I just, yeah, I love them, man. Like like I said, if it wasn't for your book, I I wouldn't have any. And because truthfully, I always I always got them sort of mixed up with Texas rats. And I remember reading seeing that there was a book on them. Like, why would anybody want to keep those things? They're vile, you know. <laughs> but then I was like, oh wait, no, they're completely different. That's you know. And then I you know read the book. I was like, damn. Yeah. Now I'm hooked. So. <laughs> so what you're gonna do, Justin, is tonight after the show, you're gonna. Put on a head torch. You're gonna take a subak, put it on the kitchen table, run to the other side of the room real quick, and see if he shines. I don't want to find it. That new headlamp I got, dude. You could see that thing from space. I went and found like the strongest <laughs> one I possibly could for this trip. <laughs> nice. I like it. I you like know, it's it. funny. Andy Middleton, because of how much we've talked about subaks and stuff, Andy Middleton got a pair, and he loves them. Nice, mm. nice. Do you know where we got them from? Uh, I don't. 
but he's so, like, dude, these things are awesome. I wish I had gotten them sooner because he's a big Morelia guy, you know. So yeah, mm-hmm. he got a he got a taste of the, the Southwest Texas. Uh, you got a taste of the derpy. That's right. They are <laughs> damn adorable, man. They're stupid. <laughs> Stupid yeah. cute, yeah. So, <laughs> so Dusty, you mentioned how you are also you're keeping uh, brettles. What else are you keeping right now? Yeah, that was my next question. Good job, Phil. Not much, honestly. I have so little time to even think about snakes. It's like my girlfriend's reminding me, "Hey, did you feed the snakes?" You know, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, and she's not a snake person or whatever, you know. But um, uh, so it's like it, it, I'm in a phase of life where it's like, okay, I need to get rid of like probably all but maybe three of my favorites kind of thing, you know, which sure. is probably going to be three corn snakes actually. But I've got, I have got, um, I've got actually the, the North easternmost blonde ever found here at my house. Okay. <laughs> blonde Sovac. It was found just 13, 17 miles south of Marathon, Texas which is like way outside of the blonde range. Hmm. Um, but my, you know, my, um, my theory on that is that, you know, if you watch that little blonde video that I sent you. Yeah, I need uh, to. I'm I'm watch it. Yeah. Uh, blondes. And this is, this wasn't my hypothesis, even though I kind of started to like, think maybe I was trying to think along these lines that, that, Don Soderberg, you know, corn snake breeder, he had, he had mentioned to me that sub, that blonde subbooks are like a photo negative of the normal H pattern ones, you know? And, uh, mm-hmm. and there was a guy, um, oh man, his name escapes me right now. He, no, he's still around and I'm friends with him. And I'm just sometimes bad with names. Uh, I know I'm going to say who he is. And he used to be the curator at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum around 1990. And he wrote a paper um, about herping the Southwest. And he talked about how blonde subox are stripeless. And mm-hmm. I'll be damned if that's what they are. That, it's, that's exactly what a blonde subox is. A blonde subox is a stripeless trans-pecos rat snake. Um, and so that was his idea. But what's, what's crazy is that um, <clears throat> the H pattern on normal subox is probably is almost maybe I don't want to say almost certainly, but very probably is a co-dominant mutation between two dorso, uh, uh, dorso lateral stripes mm-hmm. that go from head to tail and the saddles that are straddled by those stripes. Yeah. Because there are stripeless transpecos rat snakes, which are blondes. And they have the same, the reason I think that's true is because they have the exact same number of blotches as the H's that are on the H pattern ones. Okay. Was, which is about 32. I counted 10 different wild H pattern ones and 10 different wild blonde pattern ones. I counted all the blotches and H's on their backs and they're average of 32 wow. <laughs> per, per, per snake or per phenotype. And then, um, um, but then there were some blotchless ones born in captivity starting about 2012 in England again. <laughs> and they have the stripes, but no, but no saddles. And okay. it's exactly what you would see if 
what you'd expect if they were, it was blotchless, you know, so they're called striped transpecos rat snakes, right? You have stripeless and striped, but they're essentially stripeless and blotchless. That's what they are mechanically, you know? Yeah. Picture, there's a picture of one eating a bat. Yeah. So that's Daryl Eby's photo. That, that photo is in my, um, uh, so Daryl sent me all the information on that, on that observation, um, which happened in Madera Canyon, just west of Big Bend National Park. And we wrote up and sent it into her review and that was published, I think 2017. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Um, but if you get on the Transpecos Rattlesnake Facebook group, keep the keepers, uh, Transpecos Yeah, Rattlesnake I'm in that group. one. Okay. There's a guy in the UK who hatches out these striped ones. And, uh, and, and, and in this paper that I was writing on blondes, I actually have, it's still, I still work on it occasionally. I'm not finished with it. Um, I made a prediction in 2016. I was like, well, if it stands, to, if, if striped ones, if striped trans, ah, it's, it's hard to say, if striped transpecos rat snakes are just blotchless, and if blotched transpecos rat snakes are stripeless, or, you know, blonde or stripeless, then mm -hmm. a double recessive homozygote from, <clears throat> from, uh, uh, or a, a, you know, the, yeah, the double recessive homozygote that you'd get from, from breeding those two things together and breeding the F1s together mm -hmm. would, would, you know, the one in 16 would be a patternless transpagos rat snake. And oh, that yeah. happened after I wrote that. Um, wow. that was October 2016. And then um, two months later in December, the guy who's been breeding these snakes told me he finally bred striped to striped because he, he was breeding heterozygous to heterozygous at first. And he bred striped to stripe and he must have had, he must have had um, uh, the blonde gene floating around in his collection, which is real common uh, over there because mm -hmm. there's less of a gene pool, you know, and so right. rare right. genes tend to pop right. up more. Yeah. Nipper, Nipper so, always complains that he can't get bairds over there. They're so infrequently sold. He's like, I want some, but yeah. I very rarely see him for sale over there. I, I, it's funny. I can I can see differences in pat color patterns between subox born in the UK versus ones born here in captivity. There's just color pattern differences that have, mm -hmm. <laughs> that that are passed on that I can see that you just don't see in captive snakes over here in the UK in the US. You know, um, it's just amazing how fast evolution works. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah well it was interesting too with the albinos you know the european ones having that sort of that bald spot uh you know versus yeah. the US albino stuff not yeah and apparently that has happened with albino western diamondbacks too hmm. um in captivity huh. um missing that parietal in europe scale or, here in the states. or frontal scale and here in the states here in the states yeah and zoos okay. i think yeah um, but you know, what's so cool, I think, you know, for me is some, you know, when I, when I put on my biologist cap or whatever, to me, the fact that, and this is my, this is my one, you know, Eureka, you know, like scientist moment or whatever that I've ever had really <laughs> is that, Oh, holy crap. H pattern subox, normal subox, or that pattern is probably a codominant mutation because yeah. recessives of either of those patterns leads to blondes and stripes right and breeding those together leads to patternless right 
So H, H's are co-dominant between stripes and blotches. But to me, that's really cool. And it's a really cool way to introduce kids and people to genetics, like, you know, very uh, abstract mm -hmm. concepts like Mendelian genetics. Yeah. Um, uh, because the, the, the normal textbook example that you that you read about when it comes to co-dominance in a high school biology class is usually blood type in humans, you know, AO, AB, yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a very abstract thing. You can't really see it. I mean, you just have to take, take yeah. somebody's, a lab technician's word for it that you are that blood type, you know, unless you're like really into it kind of thing, right? Uh, yeah. And you understand all the molecular structure and everything. But with, you know, here's an example of co-dominance in a wild organism in Texas. Uh -huh. <laughs> you can just see, you know. So I think that should be that should be in the textbooks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. To teach concepts like codominance. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think also now is that you have a lot of uh herpers that are I don't want to say they're spoiled, but like there's you know, Punnett Square calculators on Google. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and you just put in whatever anneal you have and it, you know, tells you what you're gonna hatch, so to speak. Yeah, so, yeah. But that's really I, cool, man. The whole block. I used to do those things for fun class when I was bored, just do punnet like basic <laughs> punnet squares. Yeah. Yeah, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, there's someone with a picture of a bimaculata and it says trans pecos rat snake for sale. That that ain't a wrong wrong <laughs> side of the world there, buddy. Right, right. Oh man. I can't believe people are still reading my book and talking about it. <laughs> it just blows my mind. Yeah, man. I'm actually I need yeah. I want to read it again. So I feel like you read like and I'm not even I've been making a point to try and read more before bed just because I do enjoy reading. I just rarely have the time to actually do it for any extended period. And so right. uh, I definitely need to peruse the complete subbook again. Yeah. Especially yeah, now well, that I have subox, because before I got it, I didn't have any subox. You were asking about, you know, if I was going to thinking about doing another edition of that. Uh, what I would be interested in doing, because I don't like, I don't think about herpetoculture type questions as much anymore. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I would be interested in doing is is maybe studying like the blondes in the wild and understanding like why why that phenotype is so prevalent in the wild, you know, because it's so dramatically different than right. than the normal. H, you know, the, the normal type that you get in the wild, um, you know, almost like an albino, like why, what, like that's how different it is in a way, in a sense, yeah. you know, yeah. why is it just genetic drift? Is it, you know, just whatever, you know, just rolling the isolation, dice. And, yeah. Yeah. Or is it, isol yeah, is it genetic isolation? Is it natural, is it natural selection of some sort? Like either that's that's one of the most interesting things about that region of the states is like you do get literal islands in the like in the desert on land like you get pockets where yeah they, like there's a you know they're not mm -hmm. traveling you know crazy distances between cuts and stuff like that you know they're they're yeah they're pocketed yeah yeah um, so I would be interested in doing like a small book on on that if I, you know if I could. Um, make that happen and go out and follow trans pecos rat snakes out in the wild for say, a, a few summers or something and just yeah you know 
Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Mm. We're at about two and a half hours. So unless Phil, do you have anything else? No, I think, I think, we, I think we covered everything. Yeah, we covered everything that we wanted to pick his brain about, you know. <laughs> so yeah, well, I'll have to pick you guys' brain about uh, about how to do podcasts now. Like it's, uh, it's really not that difficult, and then you can do it for relatively cheap. So yeah, there's definitely people I want to interview, but I don't I don't know if I would be able to keep it up because there's only like two or three people I really want to interview. You know. <laughs> Like two, three episodes and then die, you know. Yeah, but at least you did it, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to what we were talking about 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 writing books. Is that, you know, put that anxiety aside and just do it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Paul, like I said, Paul had O'Shea on, and I've I've always wanted to have him on, but it's always one of those things where I'm like, there's no way he has free time to be able to do this. Right. Uh Right. Right. But then you know, Paul just got him on an hour and a half. You know, it's a great show. I, I need to find the link and share that around because it was really good. Yeah. But uh, where can people hunt you down if they want to get in contact? Subox at gmail.com. Look at that. <laughs> Ask a question, get an answer. Hell of a system we got here. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so you much. Appreciate it. It's so much fun. Yeah. I, I never turn down stuff like this. It's always. Always fun. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, everyone, have a good evening. Don't forget to check out Steve Snake Sherry's Venom Hot Sauces. Uh, the Cottonmouth Sauce is where it's at. And Sean at MP Cages and Exotics. You need cages, you need racks. He's the man to hit up. So, are, are we doing THP next week? Or are we taking the break until we come back? Uh, I was going to say, no, well, so I was going to ask you if we can actually skip snakes and stogies because i have a bunch of work stuff to do that monday okay. and uh and then we could figure out thp and go from there perfect so yeah man all right well then we will see everyone where we see them yeah thank you for coming on dusty we really appreciate it yeah thank you guys and i hope you guys have a really great time in west texas thanks <laughs> at the very least it's going to be a very nice vacation I haven't yeah, had like a yeah. week off in like two years. Like, yeah, right. Solid block of time. these days. <laughs> <laughs> like, we could not find anything, and it, I'd be completely okay with that. Like, it's just yeah, just being out there, knowing that that's where, you know. And uh, if you go to Boy Scout Road and drive all the way to the entrance of the Scout Camp right there, mm-hmm. um, it's about eleven mile road. Um, and it's probably, it's one of the best roads to drive out there because there's nobody ever on it. <laughs> Nice. Um, there's no traffic yeah um because it just goes to the scout camp at the canyons uh, mouth of the canyon that's it there's no it doesn't go anywhere else <clears throat> if you go there and stop at the in- entrance of the scout camp that's that's roughly where the first subbox were caught the first alterna and the first transpecos rat snakes were caught oh cool wow was right there at the canyon 1901 by the edmund mayenberg so I mean, if you don't find any snakes, you can be where the first ones are found by. I mean, that's that's cool enough Western as it is. Time. Yeah, that's awesome, man. <laughs> that's people have seen, if there's water in the canyon, you'll typically see uh, uh, hyla rent-a-color, little canyon tree frogs there, mm-hmm. and and uh, black net garter snakes sometimes hunting those. And uh, What about chupacabras? Chupacabra. chupacabra. I've heard of mountain lions there for sure. Mm. Nice. It's what about spot. 
<clears throat> ghosts of drifters that were murdered. <laughs> uh, guys, I if appreciate we're out it. there, at, that's witching hour, man. If we're out there at 3 a.m., we're oh, going to yeah. see a ghost. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, there's just, it's just a cool spot, man. West Texas is very unique. I'm excited. Number one on the list. I'm stoked. Awesome. All right, man. Have a good evening. Thanks again. We'll, uh, see y'all later. All right. Bye.